Hello. <laughs> Hello, my fellow Estorians. We're Swing. here. We're starting <laughs> 10 minutes late after a little false start, but hey, it's all good now. Um, fun times with technology and me wearing multiple hats. Noah Shea today, so of course something goes wrong right away, but hey. That just shows you how valuable she is. It's like a, it's like an illustration in in real time. She might have planned it. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was sabotage. I'm telling all y'all sabotage. So let's get to it. There is a lot to say. I think there's amidst all the arguing and and frustration and expect shattered expectations, we can see the story beats that George put into here. Uh, whether they were handled well or not is another topic, frankly. But I'm more interested in what those topics are. What George intended, I think, is in a lot of ways more interesting than what we actually got. And what we actually got has a lot of value, even with that in mind. So we're going to have a lot to say today. There's a, We've had some great thoughts the last few days. It's the last 20 minutes, even, like getting right right <laughs> up to the minute here. We were talking about some really neat things, some some great takes, some getting it all into the words you want, the way you want to express it. That's one of the difficulties here when, you know, we only have 72 hours or 96 hours to get our thoughts together. You have the thoughts in your head, but you can't quite express them the way you want. So anyway, that's just, uh, that's neither here nor there. So let's get to it. Uh, welcome back, Lady Gwen. And thanks for filling in for me there for a minute. <laughs> hey, good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome back to the show, Joe Buckley. Your first appearance went so well that we didn't waste any time bringing you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, obviously, I didn't do too badly. I'll try and not immediately make you regret having me back. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. So let me give a few shout outs real quick. Thank you to all the patrons who make this show possible. We've had a wonderful surge in patronage. Uh, here during the season and i hope that we can continue it after the season because as rushed as the season was our ability to unpack george's intent here has been rushed as well so we're gonna go back and, and re uh look at a lot of these plot lines because there's a lot more that we surely missed that we didn't have enough time to look at. i mean heck three weeks ago we're trying to get into azora high and the conclusion of azora high and now we're like Hardly have time to talk about Jamie and Cersei's entire arc concluding because we're so distracted by this incredible Danny twist and all this other stuff. It's like, and so many other characters dying. And it's amazing that we'd be sitting here thinking to ourselves, damn, we don't have time to talk about the end of Jamie and Cersei. Like, what? <laughs> but here we are. So thank you to Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. And thank you to our dragon riders. That includes Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell, rider of Maslacartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Talanis the Talon, king of Gagasos, rider of Talarius, the red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black. Robert the Fourth of House Ardeacor, burn king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, the black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. And Jinx of House Lyre, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. Also, I want to give a shout out to Lord Mitch of House Bailey, who is having uh, a kidney transplant. So from all of your friends and fellow Westorians here, best of luck. And I hope this 
podcast finds you well when you wake up and get to hear it. Uh, let's start also with one, uh, two, one, two slash three other announcements real quick. Thank you to Mae Jernigan for my wonderful House Blackmon shirt that I got at Ice and Fire Con. Also, shout out to Ice and Fire Con. And I want to give a couple of shout outs to two different online communities where you can discuss the episode with History of Westeros. Uh, one of them is the Flick community. Flick is online uh, chat community that's highly moderated and uh, new for us. And so far, we've got things like Battle Tactics. We're discussing things like Battle Tactics and Season 6, or Episode 6 predictions, rather. And a lot of fun stuff like that. And if Flick is not for you, well, I also recommend our Facebook group. Shout out our mods, Laura Boros, Rebea, Bloody Ben, Ahema Helminth, a.k.a. Ta- Thomas Pappas, that is, and Ari, a.k.a. Lady Lajara Dajo. Lots of great folks there. Great discussions to be had in, in a variety of places. Can I just take your pick which social media outlook or... Uh, outlet you prefer and there's something for you all right so i want to start with the genius of george r martin this is the things one of the things that uh, has come out about this episode is all these things buried deep and uh well let me start with something that one of our patrons sent us in we got a lot of feedback on this episode from listeners and westorians and there's so many great takes. So here's one that, that got us thinking. From Michael Brignolo, while there were still some grievances, the more I think about this episode, the more I like it. I think this episode was really unique in a way that it was brutally unsurprising and uncompromising. Well, some might disagree that it was with the surprising part or unsurprising part. It was definitely uncompromising. And it is kind of unique for TV. I've never seen anything like that on TV where someone that we've seen as a good guy has just done such a dark thing uh, to so many people. And uh, is that kind of a, how would you guys describe that? Lady Gwen, start with you. Just, just the highest level take you can give before we get into the more media, the details, just the way that moment felt for you. And as a TV event, Mm. um, what, what what do you think? Well, it was it was shocking. I mean, it's in in one one word, it was it was shocking, and you know, it, it took a lot of going back and thinking and rewatching to kind of unpack all the details, which we'll try to do later on. But um, yeah, in terms of seeing it as a television spectacle, um, just I think the word uncompromising was is a pretty good one because it it was that for sure and brought so many of the themes that we know George loves to uh to use in his writing right right to the fore right in your face so yeah and what about you Joe what did you think of that moment i know you had a you know an overall very positive view of the episode but that doesn't mean you do. loved every part of it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. But uh, as an overall, uh, you said the word uh, TV event, and I think that's definitely, you can see, you can picture in years to come how they're going to use cuts and shots of this to sum up the whole series because this is what it is. This is what happens when the game goes really wrong. And like Jorah and Varys have told us and others, um, we've seen who suffers and that really came across in a quite brutal manner. Um, and I just think it was so, so powerful and, um, you know, it's not just the, 
awesomeness of seeing a dragon burn a fleet and all these scorpions, but also the darker side of seeing children and husbands and wives and all these things. It really got across quite well. It's quite funny because I'm in England. Most of my friends will watch it the next day at four o'clock whenever they get home. So I can look at my phone and expect all these texts to come in. And sure enough, they did of same thing. My mother watched it and just text me the word powerful in capital letters. <laughs> that gets very well. <laughs> yeah. So let me continue with the, what Michael here had to say. I thought it was really good. He says, ever since she's come to Westeros, she has been further set back through immense losses and betrayed by virtually everyone she trusted, especially Tyrion, Varys, and most importantly, Jon. She snaps and chooses to rule through fear when she realizes that no one in Westeros loves her and never will. All of a sudden, the bells ring, the opponent surrenders, and the battle seems to be won. Now, here's where I want to take over from him. And he actually, let me add one more point he, he writes here. He says, she simply is at the end of her arc and what to do now. She keeps telling herself in the book, if I look back, I am lost. She does the only thing she can do to continue and goes forward with her plan. And this is where the hidden genius of George really comes out, I think. And uh, with the way some of these themes are hidden. And that is Danny's entire arc has been a revenge arc. And we didn't realize it, or at least we didn't fully realize it. We were rooting for her all along because George R. R. Martin did everything to make us like her. It's a really brilliant setup. He did all these things to make us like her and sympathize with her that we never really, as our friend Eden wrote, has uh, at on Twitter, at Eden wrote, very appropriate uh, uh, Twitter handle there. He wrote, we are too preoccupied worrying about her well-being and rooting for her to overcome the trauma she's endured. And we never stopped to evaluate her poisonous quest as a whole. George buried the poison in our sympathy, and now we're getting the taste of it. That's a great take. And let me just give a few examples of how he set us up. She's a young girl, abused, married off to a barbarian who rapes her. Okay, so who's not going to feel sympathy right off the bat? You're going to be like, oh, this this horrible situation this girl is in. Oh, my goodness. And then she rises all above that. She performs a miracle. And then she does the thing that, you know, is probably the most, like, who, who doesn't love someone that frees the slaves? I mean, that's like the most over-the-top thing you can do to make you like somebody. Like, this is the most just thing a person can do. And then... That's why her turn becomes so hard to witness because she we've been rooting for her. And she does all these great things, but we never stop to realize that this whole quest of hers is awful. She was in, her little brother or rather her older brother imparted all this violence in her and told her that this was taken from them and they should take it back. That's revenge. That's that that is what it is. And to me, that's really brilliant that this is paired with a much more simplistic revenge arc coming from Sandor Clegane, which is very blatant and obvious. And then we get her, you know, at the end, he's telling Danny, or Danny, telling Arya to not do that. He may as well have been speaking to Danny. If he had been saying those same things to Danny, well, Danny would be like, wait, who the hell are you again? <laughs> but <laughs> if it was, say, coming from, I don't know, John or somebody <laughs> that she trusted, I don't know if there's anyone she trusts left, but let's say there was, then it would be... I don't know. I'll, I'll let you guys weigh in on this. I've been I've been rambling for a minute. This is a good mm. example of having all these great thoughts that we can't quite put into words succinctly yet, but you can kind of see where a lot of this is going. So please, uh, Joe, you start this time. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I think the Sandor connection is the the one to look at here. He when he talks to Aya, and I know we'll get into this later, but 
when he's saying kind of look what it's done to me now we've seen what it's done to Daenerys this is a years long uh, mission and quest she's been on and when something goes on that long you can trick yourself into thinking whatever you like about it as we have also been tricked but she hasn't done anything uh, that Viserys didn't tell her to do it's the same original plan from season one it's just been seven seasons since we really had to think about it yeah, isn't that strange, right? Like, she didn't, he, Viserys, she, Viserys proved himself to be awful. She realized he was awful. She realized that he was never a true dragon or, or so, and just, it became clear he was a bad brother. But she's still on this kind of quest that he put her on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, Lady Gwen, let's hear from you. Yeah, I think, you know, Viserys, uh, for whatever it's worth, he, he just imparted that sense of entitlement to her. Uh, that he had, uh, she could rise above some of the other personality traits that that he had and that she found distasteful. Or, but but the core of what they were all about, their whole young life, with this one goal, um, that's a touchstone that it's really hard to get away from. And as far as Sandor goes, I love the fact that in the end it was Sandor who said Taria and to all of us, choose life. You know, don't don't be like me. Uh, this is not the way. This is not the way to go. This, you know, I, it's too late for me. My my path is is laid, and I have to conclude it. But you know, choose life. And uh, yeah, if that those words had been imparted to Danny by someone else, whether she would have been able to overcome her kind of programming, I don't know. But it's it's a great uh, contrast right in this episode that is really clear when you rewatch it with that, those thoughts in mind. Right on. Very well said. Um, also, I want to point out how neat it is that with connecting Danny to Sandor, something that I never thought I would do, but here we are fitting really well, how fire is such a big part of it all too. And how Sandor is afraid of fire and how Danny was sort of, we see her as someone that was, reluctant a lot of times to use her fire uh and when she did it was terrifying and now that she really did well yep it's really terrifying and you know this is why this kind of thing needs to be handled really delicately and with a lot of nuance and and this is where the show you know is has left a lot of people feeling like they didn't handle it well because i'm not sure that dan and dave grasped any of this i don't know if they noticed this revenge business with danny and they they noticed some of it maybe on a different level like a lot of us did that something's not right about this quest of hers but they maybe didn't connect it so you know specifically like we just did to a lot of these concepts and yeah so i really wonder you know uh, if they had seen thought about it differently if they had would have maybe written the episode a little bit differently as well um i really like the idea of thinking about her in that moment when the bells are ringing and how she's realizing that that's supposed to be it it's supposed to be a win this is it homecoming all this time she's been wanting to come home she's it, it but this victory it's the moment of victory and it's not it doesn't feel like victory at all it doesn't feel like a win. And that's because revenge isn't supposed to feel like a win. It's supposed to turn to ashes in your mouth. And quite literally, it's it's ash everywhere in the city. It's really interesting the way these literal themes, these, these themes are coming out literally. The whole concept of ash and the idea of ashes in your mouth 
you know, as as the end result of, of revenge, which has been a long running way to express revenge in literary in the literary world for for forever <laughs> as long as there's been a literary world so I, i'm just my head is really spinning over all these concepts coming together and like i said some of this was about 30 minutes before we started this episode so it's still spinning we're still spinning folks we're still spinning. you're spinning you're here spinning with us so let's uh do you guys have any more to say about the the moment her turning moment we'll get back to it but um if you have anything, if you want to respond to what I just said, let's do that. Otherwise, uh, we'll move on to our first set of questions. Yeah, let's move on. I, I know I have some thoughts, but down below, and we can definitely get back to Okay, cool. More Danny. Well, let's do that. Uh, first off, from Chris Nanny. Um, this is a good lead-in question, especially as there's a few of you out there, more than a few maybe, who haven't read all the books or haven't read them at all. And now that the show is ending, there's a few of you who are looking for a bit of a primer on, on where to start and uh, how to read them properly. So this is from Chris Nanny. Uh, I've watched the show but uh, and listened to numerous podcasts due to my interest in the world George R. R. Martin has created. I was wondering what the best order to read the books is. Obviously, the main five in a row. Well, that's not even necessarily true, <laughs> the five in a row. <laughs> but, well, but hold off on that for a second. But should I read the Duncan Egg novellas before the main series or after? Or Fire and Blood. I plan on reading everything that has to do with the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. I just want to know how you guys suggest I do it. Well, honestly, this is something I probably should think about more. Um, my own experience is not, isn't really possible to, to mirror because, you know, you, you can't come into the fandom in the same order. Um, what do you, do you guys have any suggestions? Lady Gwen or Joe, do you have a, a, a reading order you prefer? Any thoughts on which history books to do first? I don't mm. know that there's a wrong way to do it other than like blatantly reading things out of order, like reading Clash of Kings before Game of Thrones or something like that. Let's <laughs> <Right. laughs> go backwards. Uh, read them backwards. Maybe yeah. you'll find a secret message. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm a fan of reading the five books in a row. Um, I I think, I don't know if I talked about it here, but I, I've recently realized that um, Feast Dance um, is is an interesting um, way to approach books four and five, but I prefer to read them the way they were presented because of the um, proximity, the chapter, the, the way he reveals things in separate chapters, and you might almost lose some of those um, proximity type of things. Um, Let me jump in for a second to explain what Feast Dance is for anyone yeah. who doesn't know. Oh, probably. It's, it's, it's probably a recommended that. reading order for reading Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons together because the way those two books worked out in reality is that George split them into having a bunch of POVs in one of them and then those same POVs weren't in the other. Like there's s several characters who just don't appear in a Feast for Crows at all. And then don't, and then several who don't appear in Dance with Dragons, and only a few of them are in both. And so some people have taken, come up with a modified version of the reading order that takes chapters from Feast for Crows, merges them with the Dance with Dragons, not merges the chapters literally, but merges the order of the two, and uh, goes from there. So just to build on what Lady Gwen said, I think the Feast Dance is a good way to read it, but I don't think it's, like she said, I don't think it's a good way to read it the first time. If you're going to read it multiple times, it's a great alternate, but I don't know that it's a good first time way to do it. Yeah. Um, Joe, what do yeah. you think about uh, reading? Or do you have any thoughts on, on that or on the order of reading the historical material or Duncan Egg? Uh, I haven't tried a Feast Dance, but then I imagine I'll just keep rereading these books forever. So I'm sure I will try it at one point. Um, I don't know if it would work for me. I think similar to what Lady Gwen said, 
the themes too separate between feast and dance i think especially feast i think it's so kind of um wrapped up in itself it needs to be given due attention uh the historical ones no i've never really thought about it if i'm honest i read the world one straight after obviously fire and blood when it came um i think you can save duncan egg for a little bit just to when you've really started missing the main series it can be a bit of a pick-me-up that's what i did wait a little bit maybe less recommended that's a pretty good idea maybe the order should be read a song of ice and fire then read the world of ice and fire and fire and blood princess and the queen and the rogue prince are mostly covered in those two books i don't even know if you need to read both of them and fire and blood and the world of ice and fire but you can um and then maybe uh, the duncan egg novellas at the end that that's a maybe that's what we could suggest after this brief conversation um but others may have other suggestions your mileage may vary mm-hmm Shout out to our friend Patman23, that's his Twitter handle, for noting that Grey Worm was the first through the gates, a la Thoros at Pike. Speaking of flexing the book knowledge, that's, of course, that is mentioned in the show, but it's, uh, the book readers are usually the, the ones who are on top of those historical uh, details like that. Probably not drunk, though. Probably not drunk. I don't think Grey Worm was drunk, but Thoros apparently, yes, quite drunk. I do like how they discussed that scene in, in season seven yeah. with, with uh, Thoros. That was cool. Marilyn Sands says, I find it most interesting how the social media channels and the de- democratization of journalism via internet has led to this in- interactive form of, of consuming of cultural products like movies and TV series. Isn't it fantastic that the fandom has had an impact on the way the TV is being produced and not even by, by being polls or, or polls or market search, but proactively. We contribute to the stories that are being told. Uh, example being the phrase Clegane Bowl being used by the, the showrunners. So that was, you know, kind of a fan invention, that name. And Game of Thrones not only shows an impact on pop culture, but also reshaped the constellation of cultural creators and recipients. And this context only can I understand how people actually claim to be disappointed in the show because they feel like they can expect their personal favorite story to be told. That's a good way to say it. And she finishes up here. As for me, I am still pretty impressed by the story. The TV show tells. Whomever the writing credit belongs to, the show obviously makes us feel something and has us debate complex moral conundra, and that is exactly what cultural products should provide. And I guess it needs the disappointment and the pain to be significant. So let's all be happy on a meta level to be part of this amazing experience. It's true. Like, if some main character on another show, just who was a good guy all along, just all of a sudden turned on civilians and burned them, we wouldn't be talking about it because that show's not as popular and we wouldn't all be able to share that view and, and relate to it and have our own takes because we didn't see it. <laughs> we don't know what they're talking about. But Game of Thrones was watched by millions of people and that changes its value as a cultural significance because of how many people are impacted by it. Do you all have a take on that? Uh, Joe, we'll start with you this time. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think that's a great take. Um, it does have its positives and disadvantages maybe in reaction and when people start feeling or fans start feeling they're owed something. You can take it both ways. Uh, I think it's very similar to what the difference between the current Star Wars films and the older ones, what the older ones have been like if you had this kind of input from everybody in the social media that we have now. Or, you know, you can put it to Harry Potter or anything, really. But it is it is good, and you can see how culturally significant Game of Thrones is, because I don't think this would work with uh, anything else, not nearly as strongly anyway. Right on. Lady Gwen. Yeah, I mean, she makes an interesting point about um, 
fans expecting fans expectations, you know, as far as the story that they're going to hear almost makes me wonder if we're all a little bit like Danny, because we're expecting, you know, we're that we're entitled to have this thing, whatever it may be X outcome that we think will happen. And, um, Whoa, you know, when that meta. doesn't happen, <laughs> you know, we want to burn it to the ground. But um, I do agree that, you know, we should um, move beyond that and be happy that we're part of this experience. It's an amazing cultural um, phenomenon and we're all a, a part of it and contributing in various ways. So, um, yeah, I'm just on that level, happy to be, to be a part of it and talking about it. Great, great take. Great people. Yeah, <laughs> great take. It's true. The, uh, the expectations and that comes up with, with Danny too. What we were just talking about is that we shouldn't have had this expectation for Danny's end game being so positive. If her end game was taking the throne, which we also know is not a good thing for anyone to take the throne. It's bad. It's bloody. That throne is bloody and sharp and corrupting. Why would that be good? <laughs> you know, it's like what Lord of the Rings taught us. What's her name? Galadriel, when she's like, it, it wouldn't be good for me to get that. I would want to use it for good, but I wouldn't use it for good. <laughs> and that's the same lesson here. It's really, really good. Um, from Lord Commander George the Golden. Am I the only one who really enjoyed this episode? While there are always things to nitpick, what the fuck was Jamie and Euron? I found the juxtaposition <laughs> of the stunning imagery and tragic events incredibly moving. I don't think not getting what I wanted is the same as bad writing. One of the most attractive qualities of A Song of Ice and Fire is the moral grayness of the characters. If an 18-year-old choir boy can get shift off to war and end up participating in the massacre of an entire village, why can't the same apply to Daenerys? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? It's... And that's I've heard that from a lot of people. It's like, yes, give me, give us tragic, full, fully fleshed out, you know, characters, male or female or what have you, and uh, don't hold back. That is what a lot of people prefer, and uh, they find it more um, honest in a lot of ways, even though it's in this fantasy setting, which is very fantastical. Any response to that, uh, Lady Gwyn or Joe? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a very good take. Um, I do think that there is some valid. Uh, criticism to be made about writing and, no doubt. and you know the way the way things were developed um you know the the things that we've talked about a lot like bullet points and stuff like that but um but yeah i mean it's um they moral grayness is certainly there in spades so <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> pretty gray i think it might be a little dark gray <laughs> to the darker side of things blackened but, yeah. by fire charred, <laughs> charred. <laughs> yeah the fire jokes are not going to stop in this episode y'all just really no. not going to stop <laughs> um so a couple of people have related questions here or comments from kissed by fireworms speaking of bullet points maybe it's a better topic for wednesday because this this comment was made on monday but could john connington get triggered by the bells wreck the city and danny gets blamed in fact yes we have that same thought and we have a long section written about the battle of the bells and how this could uh relate so sit tight we'll get to that shortly Anthony Gonzalez says, maybe in the books, Daenerys will be forced to torch King's Landing simply in order to contain a massive grayscale epidemic like they use in the movie Outbreak. The fuel air bomb used to wipe out a virus and D&D just completely misunderstood George R. R. Martin's notes. <laughs> yeah, he's like stone men, not stone collapsing. I don't know. You know. <laughs> stone walls exploding because of fire. I don't know. Uh, 
Yeah. And then Scott Westbury asks, is John or Cersei fulfilling the role that Aegon, as in Fagon, will uh, fulfill in The Winds of Winter and or A Dream of Spring? Yes and no. Parts of it, yes and no. We have specifics on that plot line coming in this episode as well. So, uh, yes. that uh, the Short answer, yes. Long answer, coming. Zombie Jesus asks, Drogon seems to have hesitated a bit before roasting Varys. Is that a nod to book readers that he might be a Blackfire? Well, there are indications that he might be a Blackfire or have some sort of hidden royal blood or something like that. I kind of doubt the showrunners are giving that nod here, but I like interpreting it that way. I like the thought. Any um, any thoughts from you guys? Not necessarily on this, but any other nods you may have noticed to, to book plots or anything like that? Nothing that we don't have already. I mean, I think I think you're right that the showrunners probably are not going there uh, just because they, they don't tend to do that sort of thing. But yeah. um, I like the interpretation. <laughs> he did seem to sort of literally nod. <laughs> you're, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I see you, but I think maybe he was just uh, warming up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever's going on is gone. It was like, oh, okay. Boot, rebooting, you know, <laughs> we have no idea. Charging. Yeah, charging. yeah. I had to unplug his uh, USB cable before. <laughs> uh, did you have a take there, Joe? Uh, I didn't, uh, take the him waiting no i did think that people might start making a big deal about varus taking off all his rings and maybe worrying if there's a targaryen ring in there somewhere but no one seems to so maybe that was just me Hmm. i don't think it was but (laughs) i thought people might start making theories about that that's a good point that's a good point Okay, I got a couple super chats here from John H. He says, there's legit problems with season eight, but in my opinion, people are looking for reasons to hate. I'm enjoying the season. P.S. Sorry, I made you say herringage last time. LOL. Yes, you did make me say that, <laughs> but it was comedic for everyone. <laughs> from San Rixian, can't stay, but sending love and support. Have fun. Well, thank you very much, Sanri. Uh, Sanri's... Have your shirt on. Yeah, represent. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Blue Rose action. San Rixian's work is wonderful. From Danny the Dream, Dana the Dreamy, shout out for Lady Charlotte of House Appletree. Right on, Lady Charlotte of House Appletree. There you go. From Mob Deep, what will drive Danny mad in the coming book? Thanks. Well, we've got a lot to say about that. We will get to it shortly. A unicorn uh, sticker from Stephen Stark. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> Appreciate that, Lord uh, uh, Hand of the Queen. Prakash Thapas says, why has there been no involvement from House Reed apart from Mira Jojen Arc in spite of Hal and Reed's friendship with Ned? Love you guys. Well, we can hope to see more of Halland in the books. Do you guys have thoughts on how Halland will be used in the books? Mm-hmm. It just seems like he wasn't necessary because they had enough people to tell the parentage reveal. But there could yeah. be more to Halland also. Um, mm-hmm. As we pointed out in our Blood Raven episode, he was the one that sent Jojen and Mira to Bran when he heard about the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got some thoughts on the magical end as well. So I think that makes him interesting. What do y'all think? Joe, you first yeah. this time. I think a lot of people was obviously put him together with John's revealing. Um, so I won't repeat that, but I could see them becoming involved. The The neck is going to be way more strategically important in the books at some point, especially obviously when it all kicks off. So I don't know if maybe they'll, come out of hiding and use that in some way, reveal some good swamp secrets, how, how to stop people. That would be interesting. Swamp to secrets, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lady Gwen, what do you think? Yeah, I think Howland is um, 
obviously going to be important to both John's parentage reveal. And I think he's, he's got some knowledge of, you know, sort of what Rob left behind. Cause he's got a couple of uh, important people who were yeah. with Rob who are now uh, presumably with him. Uh, but also Halland is, you know, that's, that's quite kind of the political level, but he's also the only person in the books that has been to this Isle of Faces. And George has said that the green men will come to the fore. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we've talked about things like, you know, action moving south that back to Aaron Hall or the, the God's Eye area. So, yeah, I think um, he's, he's got a bigger role to play. And um, just disappointed that Mira kind of walked off into the sunset on the show. (laughs) (laughs) A character who didn't even have a sunset to walk into is John Connington. This next question from Greg Mill, Super Chat, who says, The Bells mean John Conn and his PTSD will result in a second brutal sack of the city after surrender. But Danny still goes dark after being rejected by the population. She bathes city in fire and wildfire makes it annihilation. Agree? You're not far off from what we have, the bullet points of what we have written later in this episode, Greg. That's very close to uh, at least one scenario we could see it playing out. There's a lot of versions of Danny getting blamed for something someone else does, or yes, accidentally igniting the wildfire caches and then being blamed for doing it on purpose. And you can see the burblings of that, the burblings, is that a word, of that (laughs) beginning with quentin you know she's going to get blamed for quentin even though she didn't have anything to do with that and she people already are calling her you know a kinslayer for putting her brother to death on the dothraki sea which you know that didn't happen either uh that was entirely drogo so that is just an example of how these rumors could work and show that danny will be blamed for things that aren't her and then yes she could be rejected by the population that she's there to save and it can get worse if she thinks she's destined to save them and has to get ruthless because of it. From C. Clabina, uh, thoughts on Yezin YRL's theory on Bran as king with Sansa and Arya like Rhaenys and Visenya sans incest. I love it because it never felt right to have Jon or Danny rule the Seven Kingdoms, not just put them up again. There's de- we'll have more to say on, on that kind of topic on Saturday when we do our predictions episode, but the idea of the possibility that Danny is going to be removed is obviously uh, possible. Uh, that she won't be allowed to sit the Iron Throne, that she'll be stopped, is possible. So we'll we'll be entertaining thoughts like that on Saturday, um, because we don't we can't say too much because we've seen the trailers, and that I can't not pretend I haven't seen the trailer, and that gives a few things away, and I don't want to spoil anybody. Uh, Chris Trombley, look at what Lost did to Reyna and Rhaenyra. They weren't born mad, but went so, but had people to check them from going overboard. Danny is all alone. Great point. Yes, these, there's a lot of examples of fire and blood of, and Eamon says, you know, in the show, a Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing. Um, Reyna and Rhaenyra, very good examples of people of mm. slowly being left alone, so slowly having their family fall apart around them and being disconnected from society. Lady Gwen, do you have some thoughts on that? That's a really good take. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, especially Rhaenyra, because, you know, she, uh, she had it won virtually. I mean, she was winning the dance of the dragons. Uh, was, it was hers to take and as her supporters and, you know, the people that were advising her fell away. That's when she really kind of lost it, isn't it? And, and then just saw everything, you know, she just went kind of scorched earth and saw everything turn to ash. 
Yeah. So, she know, stopped it, trusting. She, you know, stopped trusting Damon. She turned on people who had served her well. Yeah. It's yeah. You get some familiar notes there. Very, very similar. So, Joe, yeah. what about you? What do you think here? I think it applies to Viserys just as much. Uh, we don't really know anything about Viserys, the young child, for we know he was quite happy and normal. And then all of a sudden, all of your family is murdered and you're on a different continent. And you have Sir Willem and your baby sister. So he's alone almost straight away, has to go years like that. Um, and you can see that slow descent into madness just the same. Um, it's not really surprising. I think this whole um, arc that Danny's gone through in the last couple of episodes is very, jumped up a lot of pity for Viserys because you can, maybe even for her, she can see what's happened and you can definitely have a little more understanding of why Viserys ended up like he did because the same things happened to Daenerys now. Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> you ever, ever thought you'd feel more than a little bit sorry for Viserys? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's so... It's like the thing. We we're introduced to this character, and he's immediately so, so, so unsympathetic. And that's hard to divorce from that initial that initial reading, especially because Harry Lloyd, you know, if you watch the show first, if you read the book, it's, it's similar uh, because George writes it so well. But, you know, Harry Lloyd really just... Just deliciously awful. <laughs> I love Harry Lloyd. He's great. Mm-hmm. It really is. Uh, okay, more questions here from Jennifer Shanley Clark. After eight seasons of I Will Take What Is Mine with Fire and Blood, how are so many people surprised? I love this episode and that Jamie tragically fell back on his drug addiction of Cersei. Love Westeros history and Radio Westeros, my two favorites. Yeah, um, well, you know, not everybody, I think not everybody uh, accepted that Danny would do that or maybe thought that she would do it in a more just way. You know, that she thought that she would aim that fire and blood at people who deserved it more. And that's, you know, that could, I could see that's why that would be surprising mm. to people that she turned it on people who weren't uh, her mm. enemies. So I do sympathize with uh, a lot of different takes here. And there's a lot of different ways to see it. And that all falls back to expectations. And there's expectations. And this isn't a matter of having wrong expectations. Whatever your expectations were, they probably weren't exactly played out here. Maybe that you know, maybe some people they were, but most people there was at least some things that didn't that were surprising or unsatisfying or or what have you. So there's room for a lot of different takes here, um, and that is part of the greatness of it all. From uh, C. Clabina again. Is Euron Jamie fight in George's outlines? The show didn't set up Euron to die happy if he kills Jamie. Maybe book motives differ. I like how Jamie mortally wounded before he finds Cersei. And also what will happen with Yara and Asha. Well, uh, considering this, we have some notes on this later, but we may as well jump ahead because it's kind of a standalone part. So let's talk real quickly about what they're calling off screen the Dane Bowl. Because Euron and uh, Jamie are both Danish actors and... Uh, so <laughs> the moment meant a little bit more to Danish people, perhaps. <laughs> because, sorry that it was not the most exciting. The Dane Bowl wasn't so great. But I actually do think there's a little bit of a chance here for some of this to be vaguely book possible. And again, I use the word vaguely with intent here. Uh, so let's say he's desperate to get back to her at some point in the books late in the books. And he, and and has to do this for whatever reason. Let's say that Euron and uh, Cersei is a thing in the books. And I've said that before. I could see that happening. I don't think it's super likely, but you know, the bloodstone emperor buried a tiger woman. So that's lion woman, tiger woman. They could work. 
And, uh, you know, he likes royal-blooded babies because of the awful things he can do with their blood. And, mm-hmm. you know, he can see that. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe Jamie's the one that comes to free her from that. Maybe Jamie actually kills... Someone's got to kill Euron. I could definitely see it being Arya or Danny or a lot of other people. But I, if I squint, I could see Jamie being possible. I definitely don't think it's likely, though. What do y'all think? Any 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 hope of this at all, or is it just complete... They had to figure out something. They had to give Euron a death, you know? Is it more like that? Yes. They could have just let him drown, but no one apparently drowns. <laughs> Nobody drowns. Nobody drowns. Armor or no, you don't keep drown. Swimming. Yeah. <laughs> They're all Varus, yeah. They all paddle. <laughs> or they keep rowing like Gendry, yeah. yeah. Water just works differently all around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it it could happen. Um, I I struggle with you know the um, with the Valencar storyline, which they did not include in the show. So you know, just kind of how is that going to play out? Because like all prophecies in the books, you know, it's not that they're they're not true it's that they are they come true in unexpected ways and so far the first half of that has come true in a very unexpected way the part about their children uh robert's children and cersei's children and their her children dying although they haven't all died yet but that's kind of where we expect they're going so i i just struggling to see how we can resolve that with um jamie coming back to her in this kind of positive way but uh we we could be wrong and i mean i don't know i'm i'm kind of at loose ends with with that ending to be honest so right on (laughs) and uh joe what do you think um yeah similar it could happen it's not something i've ever particularly thought of i think it's probably closer to what you said about needing to give your on a death in some way that was significant um, I think he, uh, someone mentioned earlier about him being happy that he defeated Jamie. I do think, um, or allegedly killed Jamie. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, he was wrong. In yeah, the I just think it's kind of there. They were never quite sure whether they were really giving us um, a slightly less evil, magical Euron or a slightly smarter Victorion. They could have called him Victorion, really, and been done but it's very much the same character um yeah. they needed to choose a bit more safety there i do think it was good to see jamie uh win his final duel even though it's very clear that he's not the knight that he grew up as anymore uh nicolai's definitely looked a bit older rolling around on the floor of his gray hair there. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I 100% agree that he was Victorian, especially in that final moment. Think of this quote from Victorian here. He would give half his teeth for the chance to try his axe against the Kingslayer or the Knight of Flowers. That was the sort of battle that he understood. The Kingslayer was accursed in the eyes of gods and men, but the warrior was honored and revered. And that's awesome because Victorian is not a, you know, a likable guy, but that's three sentences and you get his character surmised completely superstitious loves 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 to fight and isn't very bright you know (laughs) and that's victorian in a nutshell like utterly loves fighting like completely embraces this warrior culture of the eyes completely bought in sold like nothing else matters so that is somewhat fitting for a victorian it's not fitting for a euron but it's fitting that he's he's lost his fleet he's his power base is gone he's got nothing but hey 
that is he still wants that worthy end and that's how that you get that by fighting against a a, a, a named figure you know some a famous person anyway so that but you know that's a this is a good example of looking at the bright side that scene wasn't good but this conversation that came out of it like getting to relive this victorian quote and talk about that that's cool that's fun so you know i like that uh yeah, so, I agree. So let's uh, okay, and we'll come back to more questions later. Let's get to some of the the meat of this. We talked a lot about Danny, and we've got more to say about Danny. But let's go back to the beginning of the episode itself, and let's talk about Varys. Now, Varys, of course, major character in the books. Hey, surprising to hear me say that, huh? Well, shocking. How is Varys a major character? No, of course, he is. So. We think that there's going to be some similarities here, probably, and some differences. And it's hard to tell because of the folding of the Fagon plot. That is a problem. Uh, it, it maybe gave them, it maybe put them in a corner in a few places with uh, regards to Varus's characterization. Uh, but Lady Gwen, let's uh, let's have you take it away here. You have a lot of good notes and, and notes and quotes. Notes and quotes. Um, the, this uh, the, what they did do well with Varus is pulling in a lot of the things that he actually says in the books uh he says in game of thrones ned asks him when varus visits him in the black cells who do you really serve you know he's he's trying to figure out what what he's doing there you know talking to him in disguise and varus says why the realm my good lord however could you doubt that i swear it by my lost manhood i serve the realm and the realm needs peace well this is what we were talking about earlier um, before is, you know, Varus being a hypocrite because what he actually wants is peace for the realm to suit his own plot with Phagon so that he can, uh, you know, have this Phagon's invasion or play out the way he wants it to, or, you know, him coming in as the savior for the realm. So, um, but he's, you know, he's got a a lot of other things that Varus said, um, in the books that they really wove in to his arc and specifically to this episode. Uh, he says to Tyrion, power resides where men believe it resides, no more or no less. That's in the Clash of Kings. In this episode, he says it to John. Uh, John kind of cuts him short. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but another great virus line, and this comes from that Ned, uh, that Ned chapter, Ned 15, is... Why is it always the innocents who suffer most when you high lords play your Game of Thrones? And that line is absolutely the thematic heartbeat of this episode, isn't it? Um, So, you know, Varys really, in a way, in spite of dark Varys, that, you know, we have a lot of things to say about that as well. Um, His words right there kind of nailed what we see going on on the screen here. Yeah. And like you say, there is there is some hypocrisy here that fits better in the books because it's it's meant to be clear that Varus is a hypocrite. We're in the show. He's sort of a lot of people just see him as a good guy, which this is a dude that engineered a Dothraki invasion just to change who is in charge. Like that's that comes with a lot of implied collateral damage, probably far more than just what happened at King's Landing. And uh so they both engineered similar things, but for different reasons. And I think that's, you know, that's a, a, a casualty of them cutting this Fagon plot is it doesn't f- neatly fold up uh, so well. Mm-hmm. And the little things like the little birds, for example. And in that scene on on Sunday, Varus is using this little girl to try to poison Daenerys, right? And that's a little, you can see that that's a little dark, using a little girl to commit murder. 
but in the books, he's cutting their tongues out and teaching them secret languages. And, and meanwhile, talking about how it's for the realm. It's like, ooh, that's yeah. dark. <laughs> he's very ruthless. Yeah. Uh, and so, Joe, let's get your takes here. Uh, well, firstly, I'm just glad that we got a Varys um, who ended with conviction. He didn't, I think he said like two lines in the first three episodes, not much more in season seven. Uh, he was definitely my worry before the season that he would kind of just drift into the background and off he goes. So this is a much better ending that he went off with a strong point. He definitely won me over last week and he kept that up. He, like you say, he is quite different to his book counterpart. His book counterpart is much darker. Uh, he's nicer in the show, but he's not that nice. As you say, he's got the Dothraki <laughs> invasion. And I think they actually made a quite clear hints that, that um, I think the girl's name was Martha and she was saying about the soldiers watching her. And he's almost, you know, like the implication would be that if she was caught, something bad would happen. And oh, he's yeah. kind of tricking her into like, not caring about that so he's not he's definitely not innocent but he is nicer um and he has a much <laughs> clearer end goal in the show this uh there's a lot of uh loose ends still for Varys. is not nearly as clear cut yet because so much can still happen hmm. so in the books or lat well in the you know the extended material the uh, the dance of the dragons material we learn that Larius Strong, whose name is suspiciously similar to Varys, only one letter different. Hmm, how about that? A master of whispers who changed sides multiple times during the Dance of the Dragons. Hmm. And had a, a strange and interesting physical deformity that uh, was associated with magic after his death. Or So, what do we think of this as a potential death for him in the books. Of course, the the line, beware the perfumed Seneschal from Quaith has been certainly applied to uh, Daenerys as, as uh, her arc and how that could, who that might be. And Varys is a very popular choice for that. But he can't exactly be a traitor to Daenerys in the books, can he? He's not, he's never really been on her side. He's always used her as a front. And then as a, uh, and once she hatched the dragons, they changed their plan to, oh, let's marry her to our candidate. So, so Joe, what do you think about some of these changes and differences from folding up the Fagon plot and what we might expect for Varus versus Danny and for Varus's death in the books? Uh, if you could weigh in on any of that, that'd be great. Yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult because there's so many options left. Obviously, we expect Fagon to get to King's Landing and him to come into con contest with Daenerys but as for how Fagon or even if he falls and then what happens to Daenerys there's a lot left out there so I'm most interested in what would happen if Fagon does die and Varys survives does he um you know was he putting all his eggs on young Griff there and now he's just completely abandoned it maybe even goes a bit Daenerys and goes well if that's it I'm going to blow the whole thing up or does he then think, well, there's still Daenerys, maybe he can convince himself into going like that, even though it's not his, if he is a Blackfire, that's not really his aim, but maybe he can get across there. There's just so many tangents still to wrap up that it's really, really hard to guess, but it's really interesting for me. I could see us getting to this point in the books as if, let's say, Danny slays the lie of Fagon in a way that allows Varys to accept it and be a part of her regime going forward. And then John's parentage comes out and then Varys switches to team John. 
That then we could end up in a similar place as we are right now to, in, in a lot of ways. Lady Gwen, do you have any thoughts on that, or should we move on to Tyrion? Uh, we can relate Tyrion to this if you like. Yeah, well, I just just say that I think that uh, Varys wants to be on the winning side, <laughs> and I could definitely see it going that way in in the books. I mean, he's already changed his plan. Uh, and it's Varys and Illyrio, right? And there's that great quote about, you know, the, what is their plan? The, the fat man's plan changes every time the wind blows or something like that, you know? <laughs> Which is a great meta quote uh, from George in Dance with Dragons. But yeah, I mean, they, they are constantly adjusting to circumstances. So yeah, like, wait, it, what fat man are you talking about? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> what fat man is that? <laughs> yeah. That's good. Very meta indeed. Um, okay, so let's talk about Tyrion, which of course relates to Varys very much. And if you wonder if, if Varys is going to be on Team Danny and switch to Team John, Tyrion is more clearly going to be on Team Danny in the books. Not 100% likely, but more clearly mm-hmm. the way things are going. And so you wonder if they'll have similar relationship in the books because it's, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, from behind the episode, they point out that Tyrion considers Varys his best friend. And that makes sense. They've been together a lot. They have similar morals and views on a lot of things. They sit together drinking, you know, several scenes like that. And this is tough. Like, it's another thing that's easy to miss and not focus on because the Danny stuff is so overwhelming. The action is so overwhelming. Tyrion is just a sad, sad sack right now. Nothing has worked. His, he's, his, his military advice stank. His uh, other advice wasn't accepted and may not have worked anyway. Jamie didn't work. Uh, the bells didn't work. He turned on Varus, and Varus looks right from his perspective. I mean, yikes. And now he's got to face Daenerys possibly coming at him for setting Jamie free if she figures out that that happened, which is not unlikely. Hmm. So Tyrion and Danny and Tyrion and Varus. That, that's what I want to get at because actually, the, obviously, his arc right now on the show revolves around those two things, or did in Varus's case. And how that could play out in the books is super interesting and super uh, relevant. So let's start with you this time, Lady Gwen. Yeah. What do you think about Varys and Tyrion and Tyrion and Danny? Well, I, as far as Varys and Tyrion go, there is. Uh, it's interesting that they they characterize them as best friends because there's this great quote from A Clash of Kings where Tyrion says to Varys, "Sometimes I feel as though you're my best friend, and sometimes I feel you're my worst enemy." Uh, so, and that's you know, encapsulates kind of Varus being who he is. He's he's pretty hard to pin down and he's always he is does change his allegiance depending we, on the situation. Maybe yeah. we should see that line as foreshadowing, which is striking me as that maybe that is yeah. <laughs> huh. right. Yeah. I good, mean let's not not forget that Varus did save Tyrion um mm-hmm. in the books. You know, he's the one and he didn't bother with Ned. He's, I actually was just rereading um, Ned's chapters, and there he is in the black cells. And Ned says to him, "Well, can't you save me?" And Varys says, "I could, but I won't." Um, and Great yet, point. not that long later, yeah. just you know, short number of months later, relatively speaking, uh, he does he has Tyrion in the black cells, and he spirits him away. So, mm. you know, there's there's definitely a connection between them there. So, good catch, very good catch. Yeah, really good. Uh, Joe, let's hear from you. Uh, well, we've got in this episode, we've got some really good characters saying goodbye moments, and Tyrion and Varys was the first. That was really a uh, touching moment of them saying goodbye and Tyrion admitting that it was him. And it was almost um, like a nod of respect that 
Tyrion had outmaneuvered Varys, even though it wasn't really much of a maneuver, but still. Um, in a longer season, I would have really liked to see a few episodes of Tyrion and Varys trying to like out politic each other on Dragonstone, or they both try and keep Daenerys oblivious. It would have been quite fun to see. There's more room for that to happen in the books, obviously. There's just a lot more space, especially if Varys eventually does come over to Daenerys, if Daenerys perhaps holds King's Landing for a time or somewhere else. Um, maybe Varys even comes over on Tyrion's suggestion. Maybe Tyrion remembers that it was Varys who saved him and that he is actually quite good as a master's whispers. So maybe he gets him on Danny's staff and then we get to see them go against each other. Uh, maybe maybe not that's a fantastic idea i love the idea of like spy versus spy yeah Tyrion and Varys. that would be really that would be tragic and long it would take a while to play out too that wouldn't be uh over quickly Sp- the spy game usually isn't uh, a slow burn or no. usually is a slow burn rather mm-hmm. um and of course with Tyrion as hand to danny uh, with the idea that she's darkening turning darker whatever you want to say uh getting more evil whatever you want to call it i don't think evil is the right word but whatever word you want to use of course this can't help but remind people of tywin and Ares. so just as Tyrion is no tywin danny is no Ares, but you can't not see some of those parallels um lady gwen uh break us into some of these yeah, I, I just and and obviously uh, Varys has a connection with Harrys as well. I mean, that was his introduction to Westeros. So having those two Tywin son and Varys with Daenerys would be a really uh, tremendous callback to Aerys. But it's interesting. Illyrio says uh, has this to say about Danny to Tyrion. He says Viserys was Mad Aerys's son. Just so Daenerys, Daenerys is quite different. And they go on to talk about her. And later on, although Tyrion has never met Danny, he tells Fagon that, you know, he's listing all the things that she's done. She's the widow of a Dothraki call, the mother of dragons, and sacker of cities, uh, interestingly enough, is one of the things that stood out to him. Uh, but he calls her Aegon the Conqueror with Teats. So I think the distinction between Danny as, you know, as Ares's heir or, you know, being like Ares versus Danny being like more like Aegon the Conqueror uh, is an interesting one. So, yeah. you know, yeah. right on. Um, so I wonder if this is a theme we'll see in the books. So we look at stuff that happens in the TV show and try to weigh it and say, well, will this will this happen in the books? And one theme I want to take a quick look at is Tyrion's, for lack of a better phrase, lack lack of stomach for this job. And will that be a case in the books? Because right now, at this point in the books, dude is wouldn't hesitate to do the things that Danny wants done. Uh, mm-hmm. He seems very willing to burn it all down. Uh, he's he's much more ruthless. They talk about how he's Tywin's son, and uh, he uh, owns up to that in a lot of ways. If we call Illyrio's first job was to get Tyrion to out of that suicidal screw it all mentality, so he could be of use to Danny. But and to your earlier point, Lady Gwyn, this is. Despite the state of mind he was in, Varys still kind of wrecked his own career, his hand, in order to get Tyrion on their side, almost. You could almost say that that was the turning point for him. This is like, well, they're going to find out who I am eventually, what we need to spend that coin wisely. And they spent it on getting Tyrion on their side. So they really invested a lot of of, of political capital in him, in a sense. So I I wonder uh, about that, because all this talk about Tyrion and Varys being together... 
that would be kind of uh, a, a hard turn for him to have to take in the books if, if all these people that did so much for him, that saved him, that brought him back to wanting to be alive and gave him a purpose just don't work out and they have to turn on each other. That would that would be a another bit of tragedy poten- potentially uh, coming down the line for us to face. Hmm. Um, but what do you guys think about this whole him having a stomach for this type of business? Because it's something they show in the, in the TV show. It's it's a gradual thing where they have all these like post battle scenes where he's walking around looking around like, oh, this is horrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that starts to happen in the sh- in the books, especially under the guise of him fighting against his own family, like seeing Lannister soldiers burned, which is that might be the part that is hard for him. You know, mm-hmm. what do you all think of that? Yeah, I mean, they make a lot about Tyrion being Tywin's son, um, sort of, you know, his sort of natural, he's learned the lessons from him the most. But um, I think that it could be that he has this evolution. I mean, he's so bent on sort of his own vengeance, his own path of going back and taking what is his, you know, having revenge on his sister and taking Casterly Rock, which he believes should be rightfully his. Uh, But Tyrion is, I think, more, you know, he's more nuanced. He's someone who will probably see sooner than later um, that that's a false path. So I definitely can see this. Right on. Uh, So, Joe, I've got a a thought for you here. Um, (laughs) I see you wrote some stuff here about Tyrion and how he could get to this point. And it occurs to me that the showrunners really, uh, they dropped the ball here uh, pretty majorly in a spot that I just, it just occurred to me, like I said. Early on in the show and the books, Tyrion has this talk with Jon about all bastards or dwarves, all dwarves or bastards in their father's eyes. It occurs (laughs) to me how of use he could have been to an isolated ruler feeling unfairly treated by for who they are danny Tyrion could have had great conversations with daenerys about how he's seen and how he dealt with that and how he dealt with being hand to a city that hated him Mm. and yeah that that could have been really good but they didn't really try to help her they just were they were just scared of her and that's a little too bad that's a great point. Just for up, but he even reminds us in this episode about his childhood and growing up almost alone, apart from Jamie. And that's what we've all been saying about Daenerys that she's alone here. So yeah, they really could have made that connection. That's a shame they missed out. Um, what we were saying before, it, I think it's easy to forget just how far away Book Tyrion currently is from wanting to save anyone. He argues to himself enough, but just saving Penny, let alone a city full of people who despised him and he despised him uh, in turn i think the show didn't nearly focus enough on how he was the most hated last day even next to cersei and joffrey the small folks still loved them more he was the the evil imp um so i do look forward to seeing how he does get back to that type of person i don't think it'll be as simple as it is in the show as that he's just really good now and wants to save all those people he'll definitely <laughs> find some um something in it for him like we say castle rock is still in his mind a lot show wise though from what's happened i think we do have to consider how heavy this past episode is going to weigh on terry and it's almost a, a smaller reflection of what's happened to danny all his efforts like you just mentioned didn't go well he was <laughs> the one who freed jamie he told him about the um 
the secret route in the basement. I didn't even mention that Cersei and Jamie died. I mentioned other. I didn't even mention that. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So in he can, if he wants to, look at it as if he's killed Jamie and Cersei, which he probably cares about less. But still, he's ended up the last Lannister. He made the decision to tell on Varys, who had to watch his best friend burn because of it and all those attempts that he made of trying to talk to Grey Worm, Daenerys and Jon about the bells and the surrender he saw it all amount to nothing and even though it's not that's not directly his fault he's going to feel the weight of it so that was a really horrible moment watching him realize that the bells were ringing and it wasn't going to happen um and like you say we got another shot of him walking through carnage and realizing I do. There's only one small ray of light that I can see, really, and it's that that little boat for Jamie just sailed away. So maybe Tyrion just thinks they got away and he can live happily. Mm. <laughs> yeah, he won't know they were in their own. That's yeah. an interesting point. Maybe he won't know. They maybe won't find the bodies. He's not going digging. <laughs> I don't think yeah. they're going to go digging, but I could definitely, I could see the opposite, Joe, sadly, that, uh, that he goes down there and he finds that sad little boat still sitting there. And yeah, be that's bad. like the, yeah, that's how it comes to him. It's interesting that he, in the books, he gets blamed for a lot of things that he didn't do. Uh, So it's very much like, you know, some of the things that we talked about and we'll talk more about with Danny, uh, possibly being blamed for things she didn't do. Uh, And he says to Jamie, you know, you're the only one that didn't think I was a monster. Mm. Um, So, you know, I think what you're saying earlier about uh, Tyrion and Danny really having a lot that they could have bonded over um maybe we'll still come to pass in the books because it will be hopefully much more nuanced <laughs> and they do have one more episode for Tyrion to try to talk to her about being isolated and you know mm-hmm. there may maybe could still happen yeah um so we'll see that's Tyrion. uh like like we said here you know his arc is not finished so we'll uh, we'll obviously come back next week and see what's up hopefully he is alive to uh for our final discussion of him in that sense. And another character who is kind of in a holding pattern right now, kind of waiting to see what he's going to do and seeing how his arc plays out. It's certainly not uh, near done yet in that sense is John. Um, adamantly refusing the cr- crown makes some sense for book John. I think, you know, he's, he's, he, you know, uh, it's set up pretty well for show John too. He's never wanted, uh, you know, high positions of authority. He's kind of earned them and fallen over backwards into them. And uh, Lady Gwen, you thought of uh, another example here that fits with that, uh, as well as um, John's thoughts on the burnings mm, and such. Yeah. So he, uh, first of all, John didn't. He's offered Winterfell by Stannis, and he really he kind of wants it, but he kind of doesn't want it. Uh, he ends up thinking that he is not going to accept it. And then he gets elected as Lord Commander, which he also doesn't really want. And we expect that if he's, you know, he's uh, chosen as, or he's really Rob's heir as King in the North, he's not really particularly going to want to do that either. Uh, So he's very much, (laughs) you know, in the books, he's very much a reluctant uh, monarch or leader type of character. Um, I found in terms of this, this episode that, his uneasiness with Danny, uh, when she burned Varys, I thought back to Sam telling him about Randall and Dickon, 
in that moment. He had kind of the same expression on his face. It's kind of, he just doesn't want to believe this. Uh, in that instance with Sam, he tried to frame it in terms of things that he's done. I've killed people that disobeyed me. And Sam was like, no, it's, you know, it's not the same thing. Uh, but you could really see the penny dropping with him as he watched her. He didn't watch virus burn. He watched her watch virus burn. So uh, this is a kind of justice that is far more reminiscent of Ares Targaryen, who, if you remember, burned John's grandfather, although confusingly Ares is also John's grandfather. <laughs> remember <laughs> that John didn't grow up knowing that, you know, he grew up knowing the type of person Danny's father was. So um, what John was raised as is a Stark and in the Northern Stark way, he who passes a sentence swings the sword. So this just doesn't square with the way he would do things. And I think he's, they also don't swing their sword at their sisters in the North or their aunts. (laughs) So there's that. So yeah, (laughs) I, I found that taking all of that, um, uh, you got the incest and this kind of like, uh, not really sure. Remember what Vera said about Danny's coin is still spinning all that stuff. He, it's really understandable why in the very next scene, he was unable to return her her affection. I mean, he's already has been shown two episodes ago to have these doubts. He he, he couldn't return her affection in episode. Um, it must have been three, I guess, because he had just learned this. You know, this had this reveal about his parentage, and he just is confused and everything. So, Jon Snow is. After all, this is in character for him, I think. He's someone who's completely incapable of dissembling. He's not a good Mm. politician. He's like Ned. He's honest, honorable to a fault. And, um, you know, it may have been incredibly foolish of him to reject her at that moment in time. But remember that Ned made many similar mistakes. Uh, you, you know, Ned's probably biggest mistake was going off and telling Cersei that he knew about Joffrey's birth. And that, but that led to Varys asking him, what strange fate of madness led <laughs> <would> you <laughs> to tell the queen this thing? And, and Ned says it was the madness of mercy. So Varys goes on to say, you're an honest and honorable man. Lord Eddard, I've oft times I forget that I've met so few of them in my life. When I see what that bring, what honesty and honor won you, I understand why. So you know, Ned is truly John's son uh, in this sense, and I, I just really felt it in that scene. Yeah, just do a little thing to, and the realm is in much better shape. Uh, but nope, <laughs> nope, not gonna lie. I'm not gonna, not gonna play that game. So yeah, yeah, Joe, let's hear from you on this. I see you got some great notes here. Yeah, I think Lady Gwen, you hit it on the head. If you ever need to persuade anyone that John, uh, despite his real parentage, is Ned's son, then this is the episode. He's just Ned through and through, not only in the mirror that Ned also had to walk into a chaotic King's Landing once 20 years ago. In this scene with um, Daenerys and uh, and Varys before that, you said it, He how easy would it have been just to just to kiss the attractive young woman that you already have romantic feelings for and save all this heartache. But no, <laughs> Ned wouldn't do that, and neither would John. Uh, doing the right thing, in his view, being honest, that is most important, even 
even what that brings into question afterwards. Uh, Ned had some issues with burying his head in the sand and so does John. He doesn't want to look at the question. I think all through this, you can, Varys's words ring in his head that, you know, power is where men put it and he's really struggling. He keeps saying that it's her decision to make, but I think he struggles with that in a similar way to Tyrion kept defending her in the previous episode and John keeps saying that she's the queen and it's her decision, but I think he he's struggling that well, maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah, that's true. And it's it's really interesting to think about. Like, one thing that I've seen got that, that's been lost in the shuffle a bit is from Varus's perspective and from the general Westerosi perspective that we sometimes, it's easy for us to forget in the real world, is that is the way their genetics work. Now, mental, not, I don't know enough about mental health and how it can be passed down or how mental health issues can be passed down genetically. But in Westeros, genetics are much stricter they just are much more straightforward so for someone like Varus to, to suspect that danny might get that targaryen madness is a lot more reasonable than it would be in the real world because the genet like we have the seed is strong and just infinite generations of black-haired baratheons without fail i mean that's the genetics are just a lot more straightforward here so passing down madness is it's sensible in this light to worry about that and especially in Aries's case where it wasn't right away. It wasn't from birth. It was gradual. And that's why Varys says, oh, that coin's still in the air. And he's not wrong in that sense that uh, from that perspective, I mean, he's wrong, but he's not wrong to worry about the impact of genetics in this setting. And that brings up some, you know, uncomfortable conversations about real mental health. But again, we, we, we shouldn't see these things the same because George's genetics don't work like ours. So the portrayals are one thing, but if we get into the root of the, the details, some of these things look a little more sensible, I think. But the, the bottom line is the same. You still have these dead people. You still have John forced to kill his own soldier the way he sees it and things like that, right, Joe? Yeah, he looked absolutely horrified by having to do that. And John's not innocent. He's been in battles and wars and... <laughs> He knows what soldiers are like, but that scene really brought me back to, um, I guess it was season two or three, the early Brienne scene where Jamie's her captive and they come across the Northerners who had raped and hanged the women. And, you know, that the whole point of that scene was to show that the Northerners aren't angels. It's not uh, Rebel Alliance versus Stormtroopers. They're all bad. There's no kind of good evil. Um, and it's that jaw quote about beast in every man um and while mm. we as viewers have been able to see that and john has seen it i'm assuming it's not been made a point to him so i think his eyes are opening a bit more and it's just a far stretch from a fortnight ago when he assembled this noble force all committed to one good deed um and now suddenly your buddies are committing war crimes left and right it's quite a switch it is quite a switch Okay, let's do uh, a quick uh, mid-roll break, and we'll come back talking about uh, more of the horrors of war, sackings of cities, and moving on to how some of these plot lines could play out differently in the books. Maybe, for example, uh, the battle against the others comes after this stuff. That's something very worth considering. And that and more coming up in just a minute. Okay. Quick shout outs for a couple of folks who make our show possible. Thank you to our 
Blood Riders, including Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt. Kohokoi, called Sun Piercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow. Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. And let's take care of our northern champions, who I don't think we've heard of or heard from in a while, rather. Jay Wilson, Winter's King. Sir Stephen, the Hammer of the North. Winter's King, Lord of the First Men. Lots of kings in the north these days. Lady Ar Ardras, Mother of Wolves, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Claymore Manticore. Sir Brian the Returned is Knight of the Last House, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Red Song. Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith says, words are wind, deeds are stone. Lady Cat Jones of the Big Pond is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Ginger's Honor. Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Ice Eyes, is the Bastard of the Last River. Lord Darren of House Rambler, the last hunt is ceaseless. Lady Bobby of House Mitchell. And Bullweir the Purple of Heavenly Myth Head House Taurus, rounding out the group. Also, uh, shout out to our sponsor, Studio Sweden. These fine horsey headphones I'm wearing are their product. Get a good look at them here. Uh, they're really nice. I had the, the the first version of them. They're called the Regent model. This is Regent 2. I really like the Regent 1. And when they offered to send us a pair of the Regent 2, I said, yes, absolutely. I would love the Regent 2 because I have exclusive, almost exclusively used these headphones since they gave them to us uh, more than a year ago. And, well, a year later, I still love them. That's a great sign. So if you want to try to pick up a pair of your own, they're extremely well-made uh, like I said, they've held up. Nothing's ever broken. I've never had any problems with them. The battery life is extremely long. The Bluetooth connection is solid. They stick really well in my head when I'm when I'm uh, moving around and being active. I really can't say enough about them. Go to studiosweden.com, and you can use the code Westeros15 to get 15% off. Also, that link is in the show notes. So check the description of the video or the link in the podcast description to find the address. All right, that's all the announcements and mid-roll I have. Let's get back to it. We have so much to talk about. Rushing through the, the sponsors and rushing through the plots. It's all the pace that's been laid out before us because we have 80-minute episodes where seven different major characters die. Like, wow, how are we supposed to talk about all that? <laughs> I pointed it out on Monday. Seven character, main characters died, six of whom were, or five of whom were introduced in episode one. And like Varus is one or two episodes later, and then the mountain is, you know, episode five or six. And then Kyburn is the only one that's a, la a later season. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk about, like, let's take a few more questions and then we'll get into some of these other characters like uh, the Battle of the Bells. I'm really excited to talk about the Battle of the Bells. Okay. Do you think from C. Clabina, do you think Book Varus dies by fire or by Danny's hand? Any chance we find out what the sorcerer said? Is show virus totally unrelated to book now? Well, to answer the last part, I don't think totally unrelated. We've already said some things that I think show some of the relationships and at least some possible ways it could go. And I want to say a word about predictions here again. I've said this before. I don't like to get in the business of just making one prediction. Sometimes that's sometimes that's all we can do because there's just no other good theories that I can think of. But sometimes we like to. But it's better to present multiple options, range of range of possibilities. That to me is is a, a better way of trying to cover the bases. Although you can go too far with that and try to cover bases that aren't worth covering. Um, <laughs> like, we don't really need to cover the possibility that, say, Cersei and Jamie are alive underneath all that rubble, you know? Uh, <laughs> other people can go ahead and talk about that. But I'm going to go ahead and assume they're dead unless we see otherwise. So, book virus dies by fire. Yeah, I think very possible. Uh, what about you guys? Yeah, it would be, be for, yeah, fitting yeah. for him. Makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. What about finding out what the sorcerer said? I think no. But we might get more of a clue of what it might 
have mm. been, you know, like some clue to what it might kind of had to what it might have had to do with, you know, without knowing the exact mm. words. Any other takes on that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get some additional insight into it, but um, maybe he said something about King's blood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> One thing we all seem to agree on, book f- fans, is that there would be a lot more magic in the, in the books. So that is certainly room for something like that to get fleshed out a bit more. Maybe someone just weighs in on Voices from Beyond one day and we connect <laughs> the dots. Like, you know what? I was reading this book on Voices from Beyond. Uh, it's this book entitled, What Happens When You uh, Toss a, a Spider's Member in the Fire? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, that sounds familiar. Huh, tell me about that book. Uh, <laughs> super chat from Kai Real, uh, with no question. Thank you, Kai from Maryland Sand. I'm so impressed with this take on Daenerys's arc from earlier in the episode. Well, thank you very much. We're going to try to flesh that out and be even more succinct with it at a later date. From Laura Brondos, that's uh, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity. Uh, love from the H- History of Westeros Facebook mods. Well, thank you very much. We love y'all as well. You guys do great work over in our Facebook group, which I once again recommend. From Dornish Dan, Tywin wipes out the reins, King's Landing sack, and Red Wedding. No one said he was mad. Danny, a woman, is said to be mad. But how much worse is she than Tywin? She, she's not, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, Tywin's list of atrocities is far greater, and he wasn't a good father either. And his legacy is that everyone wants to attack his kids and his and do get revenge on him. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, as as critical as we can be of Danny, I, I I'm. 100% confident that Tywin is worse, but that's a good point about the hypocrisy within somewhat in the fandom reaction, but even more so in the story itself, which reveals that uh, the men within the story are uh, sexist, which makes sense that they would be, uh, in, especially in that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's still interesting to note where that how that plays out. Um, any thoughts on that, either of y'all? Lady Gwynn? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that just on a very surface level it's easy to say danny's the mad queen just because she's the daughter of the mad king Hmm. Uh, i don't think necessarily there's always a lot of thought that goes into that it's it's just a very you know like i said it's a very surface thing so yeah i i mean i think arguably tywin is worse um and we see in the main series so far uh, this great sort of dichotomy between rule by fear and rule by love, which is Lannister versus Stark. So, you know, in the end, maybe Danny has to choose between those two approaches mm. uh, and she may come to regret her choices. Who knows? Yeah. Well said, Joe, anything to add? Yeah. I think, you know, you can paint anything in any way, especially in the kind of world that Westeros is. You can call anyone who kills multiple people mad uh it ties into that same um her whole lot being about revenge thing well so is everyone's robert's rebellion that was revenge tywin to a certain point that was about revenge rob's war was about revenge it's the same thing but none of them get called uh mad or or even get called out for it being revenge she can paint anything anyway it's a really good point about the hypocrisy that is really good yeah and to add to that too I want to I want to suggest that we consider as well the uh, the um, the idea that maybe the we're not supposed to de- see Danny as mad, but the characters in the story will, and that's yeah, maybe absolutely. that that would yeah. really get us to the place where she feels 
uh, that she's been treated badly, that she's been treated wrongly. And that gets into what Cersei was trying to do in the show, that they maybe could have shown us more to back it up. But she was Danny was saying that, oh, no, these these people are under her guise now, that she's poisoned their minds against me. They'll never accept me. They'll never love me. The only way to win them is is to scare them. And that is a tragic choice, but it's not she's not wrong necessarily that they are that now permanently predisposed against her uh to see her as as mad or evil no matter what she does that she it, it's not right necessarily to kill them because they feel that way but i mean that she's probably right that that is what cersei did to them that she got them to think she's evil and that there's no turning no way to change that now mm-hmm. so but we're we're about to get really deep into that. But a few more questions first. Uh, let's talk real quick about a couple questions here that relate to the mountain and uh, Kyburn. From uh, Lord Commander George the Golden, shout out to the production and cinematography of this episode. Loved the image of Sandor in the mountain on the staircase in the sky with Drogon flying behind, among many others. Yeah, it was amazing to see that. I mean, what are you supposed to do with a, the buildup to their moment is where the character beats are. But once you get into the actual fight between these two hulking behemoths, angry and hateful, it's just going to be a slugfest. And so they did their best to make it scenic. And, well, it was damn scenic. <laughs> Uh, maybe not a whole lot else to say about that but here's one that's a little more gives us thoughts about the books from ian relliford because of kyburn's death do you believe he or cersei had a mystical control over him if not why do you think he plays that role well that's a it's a good question what kind of control he has we long time we wondered if say the night king or the others in the books will just like steal him away and take control of him over or something like that and the idea that he loses control of, of his own monster is well that's straight from frankenstein isn't it uh, any any thoughts on uh, Kyburn's death, uh, Lady Gwen? We'll start with you this time. Um, well, <laughs> or the mountain versus, or the mountain versus the hound. If you want to talk about that, yeah. I mean, my thoughts on Kyburn's death were basically just Frankenstein. Actually, Yoke Boy and I, you know, the, watching Sunday Night, and when that happened, we both looked at each other and went Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> so the creature turned on his creator in the end. Uh, really because he has he has his own agenda which is uh this face-off with his brother which um you know i it it was it was certainly a powerful moment i um i was trying to remember there's something about fighting downstairs i think it's in i think it's theon at winterfell but you know I, i was the person at the top of the stairs has the has the advantage the yeah. person fighting downstairs. So I just had this kind of sinking feeling when I saw, Oh my gosh, he's climbing the stairs. Like, uh, this isn't going to go well, but he landed a couple of good, you know, good hits on, <laughs> on his brother. It just so happens that the guy can't be killed. <laughs> I mean, he stabbed him right through a couple times. So, um, I thought that was pretty satisfying, but you know, in the end, um, it had to be fired, didn't it? So. I have to mention that, in case y'all, anyone missed it on Monday, the behind the scenes of, of that fight is hilarious because they're just really polite to each other. It's just a, just a half Thor. Just it's like it's hours of three, two, one. Toss them into a wall again, you know, and uh, <laughs> like they're thanking each other, and being really polite, and it's just like what? <laughs> <laughs> you're pretty gentle for a big guy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, from Helena von Landstein, make Mordor great again. 666 Super Chat. Can we have a minute for show Cersei? LOL, RIP, lion people. Yes, she can have a minute. She can have her minute. (laughs) Not a whole minute, actually. But 
You know, it is funny to think about. I don't know what they could have done differently with her, but it was just kind of all falling apart all around her while she maintained her composure as as that as her composure became harder and harder to maintain. And that was that was cool for her. It was a bit of an acting challenge for her. But some people are like, ah, they didn't have enough for her to do. But I don't know what she could do besides sit there and and watch it collapse. You know, Um, any thoughts on on Cersei's demise outside of Jamie? Uh, she just, you know, Lena, as always, actually, not just Lena, across the board, the whole cast, they're so great at facial expressions, just saying things without saying things. And, you know, just watching her face as she just kind of lost hope uh, was yeah. really very powerful. And then, and then on a semi comical note, I just, when they, when this Sandor and, and Gregor are, showdown is happening on the stairs and she just sort of excuses herself (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm out of here that really shows where people where the focus lies in that moment (laughs) like oh when does she ever just casually walk past anyone in her whole life you know like people not it's like in real life or in her you know as queen cersei like no one ever just like watched lena heady slide by like hey that was lena heady (laughs) there she goes but she was i mean this you know joking aside it, it was comical but then you saw her um you saw her really becoming a scared woman. Yes. So, you know, it, she went from being the queen up above in the tower, looking down on her city to being down there on the, you know, uh, on the painted floor, just, she's terrified. She doesn't know what to do. She's kind of looking around in circles and she's all by herself and she doesn't know where to go. Yeah. Enter, enter Jamie. Well, let's, let's talk a little more about, uh, Jamie and Cersei in just a sec a couple more questions here thanks from Daryl Hall and T-Bone Steak for the super chats without a question Princess Scanius asks I almost see Danny's arc much like Tyrion's speech during his trial you all think I'm the awful thing and that's what I'll be except she will be able to act on it that is a very good take and it relates to what we were saying before about Tyrion and Danny could have had some things to talk about but I guess that just didn't occur to the showrunners but it will occur to George. <laughs> it's probably already <laughs> occurred to George. That Those conversations were already partly mapped out. Probably. They, may, they may already exist in, in what he's already written for The Winds of Winter. Uh, so, but that is a really good way of looking at it. If she's going to be the monster that they think she is. Very, very good reference there. Uh, from Dracarius Fire, Super Chat. That's an appropriate name for this episode. Thank you, Aziz, for your commitment to books and show. HBO knows D&D let us down. They are pouring resources into the spinoffs and will be epic. I hope you continue with these videos for years to come. We are absolutely planning on covering the spinoffs. And if Lady Gwen and Joe want to come on to talk about them when the time comes, we would love to have you guys on to talk about them with us. Especially if they are indeed epic, because it sounds like they might be. Y'all hear that they're <laughs> calling one of the one of the, the 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 long night show, which doesn't have a name yet. The nickname they're giving it is Blood Moon right now, which is kind of cool. <laughs> it's also like that surely isn't the final name. That name's been used a lot for a lot of other things, but it's a cool mm-hmm. nickname for it, I guess. Um, Straight out of Zelda, that is. <laughs> Carol Funk wants to know how do John and Danny hook up in the books anyway. Good question. Uh, I guess there's a lot of ways that could play out, but any thoughts on that, either of you guys? I haven't really, ima- actually, I honestly haven't sat down to imagine how that would f- happen in the books. No, I, I guess probably quite similar to the way it happened in the show. You know, I, I expect that John will be king in the north, and then, you know, if Danny comes and either, you know, takes Dragonstone or has made a base in in Westeros somewhere. You know, John hmm. is no fool. He'll think, geez, 
dragons would be a useful thing at the wall. So, you know, in his fight. So I, I could see him going to her just the way it happened in the show. Right on. Any thoughts, Joe? Yeah, there's still so much to be sorted out, especially on John's end about how he comes back to life. So there's a lot, especially if he's brought back uh, using fire, if that has any uh, effect on his relationship with Daenerys. But I've, you know, it's not even really set that they'll have a romantic relationship. That does mean the show would have taken quite a large diversion. So it's likely, but it's not for definite, even though I do think they will come into contact at some point. Um, so no, I'm quite interested to see how it comes about. Right on. <clears throat> from Philip Wolf, no man has ever died from bending his knee. He who kneels may rise again, blade in hand. Balon Greyjoy. Mm-hmm. Philip says, John sure does a lot of bending the knee, possible foreshadowing the end of Danny John. Well, that's true. There's certainly a lot of ways that Danny could or could not be removed from power. One thing I want to point out that's very interesting about John here that I neglected to mention earlier is that he has loudly and full-throatedly endorsed Daenerys and said that we're supporting her, and he's a guy that sticks to his word and has said it publicly, which makes it even harder for him to back down. And now he's endorsed what has just, by you know, by extension, has endorsed what just happened. And uh, his own guilt versus his own actions will be very interesting to see what they do. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see what happens. No predictions just yet from blue duck umber finally stark red shirts killing lannisters the north seems to be lacking on individuals with great prowess great john middle little but nothing like the other six kingdoms maybe due to lack of tourneys <laughs> yeah they do have their vicious melees instead of their jousts up there don't they we hear about that in the uh, in the world of ice and fire and it sounds nasty like lots of people always die during these things so yeah, uh, I guess there wasn't really a question there uh, besides the lack of tourneys, maybe. But that's a great, uh, a great thought. Good notice, and yeah, it was nice to see. It was nice to see. Some people didn't like it. Some people didn't like the focus on commoners, but I thought that was interesting uh, to see the plight of of the commoner from the street's eye view and not seeing Danny at all for the rest of the episode. Not seeing her face. Just the screams. Drogon's screams were constant, and the fire. It was just terrifying. Um, whether it, the terror made you feel empty or hating Danny or hating the writers or whatever you felt it was intense for a lot of us um, or even most of us I love this joke though if this was a political slogan and these were politicians trying to spin what they had done or before they did it Daenerys could have been campaigning on the slogan I'll breathe new life into the city (laughs) that was uh, that that tweet was sent to us just before the episode, and I realized I didn't grab the Twitter user's name. I'm so sorry. I'm, I used I used to uh, normally like to give people credit, but I'm staring at this quote and realizing I didn't grab the attribution. I must have been rushing too much. Well, apologies for that. I'll try to get you your shout out next week. Um, to from Maura Lee, just a show of love and support for both you and Ashea. I love all the wonderful content on your channel and the kitties. Maura, of course, big fan of the cats, as are we. <laughs> we have a we have a new cat hanging out outside our house, like a stray that's been coming around. We've been feeding, and it's a real fluffy Maine Coon cat. We've nicknamed um, Puff Daddy. I called him Puff Daddy. Then Fluff Daddy. Then we realized it's probably a girl, so it's uh, <laughs> then went to Fluff Mama or Fluff Caddy. It's working itself out. We're trying to figure out this name. <laughs> So the sack, the sack of King's Landing, you know, Tywin did it, like someone mentioned before, and mm-hmm. it's a 
it's a thing in military history. It's it's one of the worst things to realize when you study military history is just how common this is. There's been tens of thousands of villages, towns, and cities sacked uh, in much, much worse ways than what we saw on TV, although we don't see it. And that changes it when we actually see it, even when it's completely fake. But it reminds us of the reality and... Uh, it's worse, usually, like I said, in reality, because usually uh, in the ancient world, there was the killing and the burning, but also the enslaving, which <laughs> it's weird to say, well, at least Danny isn't enslaving them. She's only burning them. But it is true that that's a real uh, a thing, that that real war is, is far worse than what we're seeing here, even though it's really awful. And even though the show loves to kind of dial things up to 11, even George likes to dial things up to 11. They could have gone a lot farther with this, and it still wouldn't would have fallen short of of how the real world has worked in this way. So, uh, let me turn it over to y'all and uh, Lady Gwen. Start with you talking about some of the examples from the books of how George has has been building mm-hmm. this up to to reject war as a good thing and to show that there's no way to to take a throne without trampling millions of children or at least thousands of children or or, or anything like that. So, yeah, hit us with that. Yeah, I mean, we you talked about Tywin versus Danny and uh, Joe. You mentioned the Savage Beast uh, quote earlier, and I have it here. It, it's uh, Jorah telling Danny about the sack of King's Landing uh, in Robber's Rebellion. He says, "I saw King's Landing after the sack. Babes were butchered that day as well, and old men and children at play. More women were raped than you can count." There's a savage beast in every man, and when you hand that man a sword or spear and send him forth to war, the beast stirs. The scent of blood is all it takes to wake him. And I'm sure I'm not alone in having that very much on my mind during this episode, because that was what was playing out on this on our screen. So that focus on the babes and the old men and the children at play. It was a, the child with the with the toy you saw and, you know, women being raped and terrorized and burned and, and men that were supposed to be the good guys turning into savage beasts. Uh, And really all it took was that moment of, you know, Oh, we're, we're surrendering and Oh, guess now, now we're not. And just for it to become this real bloodbath, So um, we have lots of other quotes about about (laughs) stacking cities. George has written a bit about this. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'll leave the ones that are specific to Danny. I'll skip over those. But uh, just to skip to um, Thoros of Mir telling Brienne, you know, I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice is what we were about when Beric led us. Or so we told ourselves we were king's men, knights, and heroes. But some nights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. And that that was my immediate take when the episode ended Sunday night. That was the thing that was foremost in my mind. War makes monsters of us all. Mm. So, and you yeah. also wrote uh, a couple things about the Dothraki and knights. And I think that's really interesting. You take the Dothraki and their religion mm-hmm. is that buildings are wrong. <laughs> you should not have buildings. You can't, right. you don't rule kingdoms. You destroy them. That's their cultural ethos. And Dan- Daenerys has brought these people to Westeros. And so if they mm-hmm. get out of hand at all, she will be blamed for it. And frankly, they might have a point. <laughs> and, exactly. And, yeah. but, but on the other side of the coin, then like like sometimes the knights are the monsters, Bran. Like you quote, you wrote this quote here, and that's so on point because yeah, 
the knights aren't much better. The only the the, the, the knights are a little better than the Dothraki. They still rape. They still pillage. They still burn. They still kill. They don't. They do at least have civilization afterwards, some semblance of it afterwards, and they don't enslave. So they are a little better, <laughs> but it's not a lot better. They're still monsters during the war part of it all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. Well, Jill, let's turn it over to you. Uh, what do you think about this? And I want to, uh, on this theme, and let's have it uh, take us to Danny as well <laughs> in all this thinking and how this might have how this might have affected her in the moment and what she might have been thinking as to how her soldiers react would react as well as uh, what her intent was. Yeah, sure. We'll get to I'll get to uh, Danny, but to reply to your point about um, the focus on the small folk and the commoner, I thought it was spectacular i thought it was honestly one of the better jobs they've ever done in any season the shots of the girl hiding behind the column and the man looking for his wife and all the burned people it was it's it was sad it was an emotional uh episode uh i finished on sunday and i was sad i felt bad i watched it a second time and i still felt bad a third time it doesn't it, that kind of thing doesn't get any easier to watch um and it makes you almost forget, like you said, we've had seven main characters and afterwards I just kept thinking about all these people who'd just gone through like the worst, worst thing imaginable. Um, they did a, a fantastic job in my opinion, but to bring it back to a singular person in Daenerys, um, I keep thinking about what her mindset is in that one moment, because like you say, we don't see from her again. We have when the bells are tolling, she's looking and she obviously has this kind of break but we don't we don't have an internal monologue we're not reading so we don't actually know what her line of thinking is and i think there's several well there's two main possibilities is the idea of um what you're willing to pay what price you're willing to pay to get to the iron throne which is a theme we've seen all the way through the books um and the show stannis it comes to to stannis uh that famous either gendry or edric weighing the life of one boy against uh, a million or whatever it is and he says it's worth it and Davos obviously thinks it's not and it's an argument a theme that they've gone through a lot so is this Daenerys thinking this is genuinely the price she just has to pay if she wants to rule um she's told Tyrion and herself that she's doing it for the future generation so maybe she just thinks that this is their price although that would have been more sense if she only targeted the red keep and not all the commoners but still yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or is it the other side of the coin where she just uh, doesn't care anymore? We mentioned earlier about the bells sounding victory, but really what sweetness is left in victory? All the people that she would have wanted to share it with are gone. Um, and especially with John also now rejecting her, she's probably adding up that it's not really going to end up well for her and John. So what is the point really? And it relates to me back to the season one or Game of Thrones lesson that she learns from Miriam Mazdur and Carl Drogo and what is life when the rest is gone and I think that's come full circle and she's now seeing exactly that again what is the Iron Throne when you don't get to share it with anyone yeah she her mm-hmm. only the closest thing she has left to a friend is Grey Worm and Grey Worm is this uh, behind the scenes they're calling him the angel of death and this traumatized robot that's his word Jacob Anderson's own words and frankly that dude turning dark is he's as scary as drogon i mean he is he's so good at killing and he's um 
you know, as a as her right hand man, he's amazing. But if he reflects her moods and becomes like, I don't know, I, I thought of how Dario is teaching him like how to be an effective secret police force guy, like a like learning the methods of how to control a population. And I don't think we'll get we don't have time for it to go that way. But it occurs to me that unsullied like jorah tells danny the unsullied well then they won't sack a city unless you order them to and that's a selling point and it's it is kind of a good selling point but on the Mm. other hand they also won't scruple (laughs) you know they're like if she orders them to do the worst they will Mm -hmm. do the worst and they'll do it more efficiently and more awfully than anyone else potentially uh Mm -hmm. so but it's also really rough for a lot of people seeing uh, Grey Worm turn dark like this uh, to stab a guy in the back that was hard for people to see um, a lesser version of Danny in a lot of ways because he's not as major of a character but you know a lot of people like Grey Worm a lot and seeing that is just it's hard uh, mm-hmm. so gotta feel a feel for anyone in that spot hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully he has a decent ending but uh, I worry about him in that sense uh let's see here moving on a couple more questions uh chris cabeth says daenerys did not die a hero but definitely lived long enough to see herself become the villain and that's uh, something that could add to her own negativity if, if she's not mad if she's you know mad in quotes and not literally you know diagnosably insane mm-hmm. having to live with herself after doing this that won't, might, not, might not be easy see if she was like a mad king Ares and just didn't have didn't care he doesn't have any like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. No remorse. In a sense, that would be easier because he's crazy. But Danny isn't actually crazy, I don't think. And so she might have to be like, oh, what have I done? And that <laughs> could be something she can't forgive in herself. Like for all we know, she's going to immediately regret what she did. Maybe yeah. she won't. We don't know. Mm. Any any thoughts on that, y'all? Yeah, I have. I want to bring this quote in because I think it really fits there. You know, I, I was thinking earlier about this possible link between the uh, the bells and the, the bells in Dothraki culture, which symbolize victory and the nature of victory and Dothraki. And Ooh. we have this this uh, in their culture. You know, we have this quote. I mean, you alluded to this a few minutes ago, but from A Clash of Kings, um, Danny is thinking about the Dothraki, and it, it says, the Dothraki sacked cities and plundered kingdoms. They did not rule them. Uh, then it goes on, Danny had no wish to reduce King's Landing to a blackened ruin full of unquiet ghosts. She had slept <laughs> enough on tears. I want to make my kingdom beautiful, to fill it with fat men and pretty maids and laughing children. I want my people to smile when they see me ride by, the way Viserys mm. said they smiled for my father, which was a lie. Oh. Sorry, Danny. But it says, before she could do that, she must conquer. So it's easy to see if she kind of falls into this Dothraki way of of doing things, which, you know, she's sacking the city and, you know, pretty much reducing it to ashes, uh, that afterwards she'll have some regrets. You know, if that was the price she had to pay to conquer, um, then she's had to abandon her wish to not destroy her kingdom and, and mm. to, you know, her hope that she could make people happy. Well said. Very well said. I did not mm-hmm. think to connect the bells to the Dothraki. You know, we were focused on the Battle of the Bells. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's really good. Very that's good. one of those things that came up like 20 minutes before. <laughs> <laughs> one of many. One, one of many. many. Yeah. 
Uh, on a similar vein, uh, patron Growl Tiger considers connecting the phrase "the things we do for love" in this light of Danny, you know, thinking that the populace of King's Landing and Westeros will love her for liberating them as the slave cities did. And well, no, that's not likely to happen, is it? Uh, good call to make that connection. And um, of course, in John's sense, John being unable to love her was uh, part of her isolation uh, from all that. Because John's endorsement would have meant a lot. You know, he's the hero of Westeros in a lot of ways. And if he accepts her as a lover, then that then a lot of other people would too, just by extension. And by extension, him rejecting her has serious consequences. But we've covered that. Uh, from a couple other random questions here, Michael Sardina. Hey guys, assuming we get a similar battle to what we saw last week on episode five in the books, I think it's more likely that Danny will be facing Cersei uh, or maybe, uh, which could possibly include Crozai, or maybe some sort of Young Griff Golden Company Dornish alliance. Well, I, I think we could have both, but I don't think Cersei will have the Golden Company. That one I don't think we'll have. <laughs> but I do think we could have multiple showdowns here. There's room for that. Um, any thoughts on that, y'all? Yeah, I think, you know, this is where we're we're seeing those kind of plot lines merge together. So I think that it could be multiple multiple fronts and um you know don't forget that uh Littlefinger refers to the the three queens mm. uh in talking to Sansa and I'm fairly certain he's talking about uh you know Danny Cersei and Marjorie. Uh that's always been my conviction about what that means. And uh, that seems likely if you have uh you know Marjorie as the figurehead of the Tyrell who are, you know, uh, allied with Young Griff and the Golden Company, and then you have Cersei, and then you have Danny. So you have a kind of a three front struggle going on there. Yeah, that makes sense to me as well. Uh, next question. Let's see. We have lost my place uh, from Bloody Ben Blackwood, aka Scott Wartman. He's a meta observation. The last episode George wrote was The Lion and the Rose, season four, episode two. That's the the very first shot of Daenerys flying over the city, as in the dragon shadow, uh, was potentially filmed all the way back then. (laughs) And uh, he also noted that it's a little different. They may have, you know, fixed it up a little bit with CGI over the years, uh, modernized it a bit or something added budget to it so that's interesting and that's uh his thought is that maybe this is where they you know they proof that george told them that king's landing was going to burn and that danny would play a role in it one way or the other now one thing that makes us think more though is those curious little mini wildfire explosions that were going off during there's like a nod to what might happen in the books it was very curious it was like hey they just just threw that in there (laughs) made some fire green for us It, it didn't go anywhere as far as the plot in the episode goes but it certainly made us book readers think um joe any thoughts on that wildfire inclusion is that just a reference to stuff we've already talked about or i think it was a definite nod yeah they, they, they no way they had to include it the city was already burning down it <laughs> yeah. can make any difference at the end of the day so yeah i think that maybe is just a nod and a, a reminder because um i think it's mentioned more in the books that it's kind of everywhere like there's and there's places mm-hmm. they don't even know all all the places it is um so yeah i think that comes into play at some point whether it's the actual use of it or just the threat of it i don't know but it will it will pop up certainly right on 
Uh, okay, let's see here from Nancy Groth. I'm still in denial that Book Daenerys will go Mad Queen in the books. Will it happen and just be more credible from POV and with proper development? Also, wasn't there a show tease that George R. R. Martin had three big surprises? Hodor and Shireen, being two of them, is Dresdenizing Daenerys, the third surprise, or are we still do another on the show? Well, as for going Mad Queen, I think we've explained that pretty well, that we think that it might be a perception thing, but it might be partly real if the way the perception goes just turns her a bit dark and all the rejection and isolation. But I don't know about... I don't think she's going to go the the route of Ares. I don't think she's actually going to have real mental illness that's, you know, uh, something in her brain that's not uh, structurally, rather than it being these outside things that are pushing her. Unless you guys have a different take on that, I want to answer the second part of this question, which is the surprises uh, well, it could be. Yes, it could be a surprise. It could be one of the three surprises. However, if something, if we get a surprise king at the end of the of things, or if Danny dies, uh, you know, which is possible, or John dies, that could be it instead. You know, like there's a lot, there's a theory, that theory of Bran being the king at the end. That would be a pretty darn big twist. <laughs> so I have a hard time thinking that D and D would just be like. Okay, Bran becomes king. Yeah, all right. What's next? You know, next note. You know, they say they don't react to that at all. You know, maybe that's not the biggest surprise. That's a pretty damn big surprise, though. Uh, any thoughts on that question or the previous one, y'all? <laughs> Lady Quinn's just too busy laughing. <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm sorry, Bran. <laughs> Bran the Broken King. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that um, it does serve to remember that Ares did have specific bad events as well. He had a turning point when he was uh, taken to Duskendale. So it does relate to what happened to Viserys. He had a reason to turn up like he did, as Daenerys does. Um, Like you said, I would definitely hesitate just to call her mad outright because they've laid down what I think is really good development for um, what's happened to her here. So even with Ares, where it's a lot more clear-cut that he, he was actually insane... Um, he wasn't, even though there might have been the uh, groundwork, he wasn't like that from birth. Yeah, like you're not going to see Daenerys proposing to build gigantic water tunnels from King's <laughs> Landing to Dorne. Like that's the kind of insanity that Danny just isn't going to have, I don't think, any, no matter what. Even, And I don't think, again, I don't, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical that she'll have insanity a term that we're throwing around kind of lightly you know that's that's part of the problem here is sometimes the english language is great because it lets us say so many things in so many ways but sometimes these terms are 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 restrictive because we're not able to use them properly like insane has all these different like you could sean argued that danny's actions were insane but that doesn't mean she is insane you know Mm -hmm. just like cersei or varus calls Ned's release uh, of the information about Cersei, uh, Cersei's kids to Cersei madness. You know, he's he doesn't mean that literally, but it is to him completely bonkers. You know, it's like, that's nuts that you did that. I know you're not an insane person, but that thing you did was. So it's a it's a slippery slope the way we use these words. A related question from Alicia Clugston. Do you think Danny is more Mad Queen, as is being stated everywhere online, like her father, or Daenerys the Cruel, like Magor the Cruel? Well, I don't think she's like Magor, but that is a more apt comparison here. Magor wasn't as more, was like a psychopath, and Danny's not a psychopath, but she was behaving maybe psychopathically in this moment. And that's more like Magor, who probably 
was more like that uh, rather than someone who thought they could build tunnels from King's Landing to Dorne, <laughs> which is one is like, this is really cruel and heartless. One is just you're planning impossible things. You know, <laughs> your, your, your dreams don't make sense, dude. You know, that's, so that's two different levels of, uh, any thoughts on that comparison, Magor, uh, versus Danny or May, uh, Danny versus Ares? Yeah, it's definitely more apt, um, you know, I think it's, I said earlier that she's, it, well, it was a quote from the book, said she's uh, more, more uh, Aegon the Conqueror than, than Ares the Mad King. Um, she's definitely more of someone who's willing to use her power uh, in a way that doesn't seem acceptable to other people. So I don't think she's quite Magor yet, but... Um, you know, she's definitely somewhere in between Magor and Aegon, I guess, rather than... Magon! Magon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Alicia also wrote a nice capstone to this comment that says, Sh show Danny, or, well, just Danny in general, it's neat that Magor, if we're doing this Magor comparison, Magor finished the Red Keep. And Danny has now undone that. <laughs> Which I wonder, too, real quick, do you guys think that the Red Keep is going to get destroyed or mostly destroyed in the books yeah yeah I, w I wouldn't be surprised um I i'm not sure you know you mentioned the wildfire a few minutes ago and whether there are still wildfire caches under um they're everywhere you know in yeah. the books it's it's clearly laid out that they're like this kind of sleeping horror under the city uh you know Tyrion talks about it and jamie knows about it so uh who knows you know and and whether she destroys it with a dragon or whether something like that happens maybe she accidentally destroys it yeah <laughs> because she didn't know about the wildfire it presents us with a strange conundrum because it makes sense that there's there's a lot of foreshadow for king's landing to be destroyed but here's where it gets weird the show gave us that scene in season two where it was debated whether that was ash or snow falling in through the ceiling in the destroyed throne room. The script reveals that it was snow. Hmm. So, uh, so they changed it, which is fine. That's the kind of gardening that worked. You could change changing it from ash to snow. I mean, it wasn't ever explicitly one or the other in, in the show, so it's fine. But if George intended it for for it to be snow, and then wait, then how do we get kings then? Is that a different foreshadowing for King's Landing being destroyed by wildfire? Because that's also foreshadowed pretty heavily. So uh, that's very tricky. It kind of seems to both answers seem to be pointed to. and But they could also both be true. I suppose that King's Landing could be blown up by wildfire and then the others could come. <laughs> and then snow yeah. and winter could fall. Winter starts, yeah. Yeah, so we can yeah. have both. Um, we can have both. Uh, one more question. Wait, this you one's... mean we could have ice and fire? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> One more question, and then we're going to talk about the Battle of the Bells and uh, whatever else we can squeeze in before the end, because we're probably going to have to cut a few things. We can't cover it all, as we often can't. Uh, Lady Bird wants to ask Lady Gwyn. It seems that not many people have talked about John's post-mortem character in the books lately. Last we left off, the boy was just killed. What will the man be like? Will both John and Danny make darker decisions? I think we probably covered Danny making yeah. darker decisions for sure. Uh, John. Yeah. I mean, it's not something we've talked about a lot because, you know, we kind of tend to skirt it. We all have this expectation that John is going to 
you know, be revived in the books. And we don't really talk about what that will look like a lot. Uh, so I think um, my expectation has always been that he will be um, a little bit darker, you know, uh, a little wilder. Definitely he's going to be a man. The boy was killed. The man is going to have to take over. Uh, I think he'll he'll find something inside himself. Uh, we have talked about him, you know, residing inside of ghosts during that time in between. And, you know, what would that do to him? You know, when a war- warg takes on his his uh, companion skin for too long, it becomes more and more like the animal. So, mm-hmm. you know, it'll become more kind of wolf-like. And what does that imply? A little bit darker for sure. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Good point. Good take. Okay, let's talk about um, perception versus reality. And what I mean there is the reality being the books <laughs> and the perception being what we were shown in the show and how it could go differently. Uh, as we know, most of what the showrunners got from George was bullet points. Uh, once he moved past the main material, surely he explained some things in greater detail, but also surely he's changed his mind on a few things. He is a gardener style author, and that means that some of the things he told them have probably changed. Maybe not big changes, but uh, maybe a couple of big changes. You never know. So let's talk a few things about the, uh, with that in mind. First of all, I'm going to recommend Stephen Atwell. Stephen Atwell wrote uh, a great piece on how some of these things could be ordered differently in the books. Uh, we predicted that the Night King would be dealt with before Cersei because Lena Headey's such a big character and because they've made it about the throne, hashtag for the throne, all that. There were clues for this. But I don't think that's the case in the books. And, and Stephen Atwell and other people have written about alternative ways that some of these same events could happen in a different order and what that would mean. Uh, Again, like we just said, we just gave one of those examples. King's Landing, King's Landing being burned, wildfire to the ground, and then the others come, which would make defeating the others a lot harder if this population of people is not there to conscript in the war. Uh, also keeping in mind that, of course, the walkers will not be taken out in the books like by just taking out one key walker, <laughs> like Night King. Uh, Joe, what do you think about that? You wrote a few thoughts on this part. Yeah, I'm almost certain that that'll be the case. That it's not um not a matter of just taking out one other one king or whatever it is, and they all go down. The um the famous George talking about Lord of the Rings and the little orc babies in the mountains. He's he's too much a love of logistics for it to just be that simple. Um, I think this will be not a uh, one and done thing. Even with the big battle, I just think the problems of it they're not going to go away in a day. Not all, or a night. Good point. Good point. And you're right also that George likes the logistics, which is why I th- I wonder uh, if he planned ahead on the logistics. It certainly has stood out to me before that the human capital, the populous set, the, the biggest population center in Westeros is so close to the magical center of Westeros, the God's eye and uh, near Harrenhal as well. And so the fact that you have winter, culminating potentially around some of the same time that these things might be happening, culminating in these important areas. The fact that they're close together could be really important. Uh, at least George gave himself the ability for these story beats to happen kind of close together uh, physically. Um, while things could still be happening in the North at the same time, maybe, but maybe it'll be inhospitable because it's too damn cold. Uh, and Danny has these vicious vision of melting others on the trident, bathing them in dragon flame. And, uh, well, again, that's near King's Landing, so it could all work out. It could all be 
come closer together than we think. We talked a lot about Danny being blamed for this stuff, so we don't need to go, go back into that. But we could talk about what how this applies to some of the book th- excuse me some of the book thoughts and finally get to talk about John Connington which we uh, have been hinting we would talk about and we haven't been able to but before we do that real quick just to lead into it a little bit just to remind everybody of just how different Daenerys is and how unique her situation is sure she was told that she's this child of destiny she was told that her her by her brother that that her family had this birthright stolen from them so half the if the the Mad Queen is what half the realm is calling her. Uh, what will that do to her state of mind if she thinks she's actually a savior? If she, if she thinks she's a prophesied hero, which she's being told. We have uh, Benero and Makoro and, and the high, all these other high priests of her lord just flat out saying that she is literally a prophesied savior of mankind. This is something that no one else can kind of understand. And it's not just the, prophet, the prophets and, and the religious men. It's the so-called learned men of Westeros as well. I mean, uh, Lady Gwyn, read this quote for us, please. Uh, from none other than Maester Aemon, a person Aemon. that we all think is a wise man. Very wise. This is from uh, Feast for Crows. He says to Sam, what fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. The error crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Barths are the truth of that. But now one and now the other as changeable as flame. The language misled us all for a thousand years. Daenerys is the one born amidst salt and smoke. The dragons prove it. Just talking of her seemed to make him stronger. I must go to her. I must. Would that I were even ten years younger. Man, so strong. Yeah, Eamon's quotes are so good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's a segue here into John Connington. Uh, so he, it, it really strikes us how John Cunningham's memories really conjure images of what we just saw in, in this last episode. Uh, and John Connington is the heart of the Fagon plot, of course. And of course, we've been talking a lot throughout this episode about how Varus and John and all Tyrion and all these other things could work out and how it could be Fagon sitting on the throne when the wildfire gets blown up, when the lie is slayed, you know, the cloth dragon on poles being cheered for, the crowds cheering for this cloth dragon when they maybe should be cheering for Danny. And I say he's the heart of the Fagon plot. I mean, I ch- chose that word very specifically because he's definitely not the brains of that plot. <laughs> uh, but he's also very tormented by his failures ago. And the interesting part is the Battle of Bells for him was the burning po- uh, turning point. Yeah, that was on purpose uh, of the <laughs> of his arc or and the thing that he looks back on as his his big failure. He says, last night he dreamt of Stony Sept again. Alone with sword in hand, he ran from house to house, smashing down doors, racing upstairs, leaping from roof to roof as his ears rang to the sound of distant bells. Deep bronze booms and silver chiming pounded through his skull, a maddening cacophony of noise that grew ever louder until it seemed as if his head would explode. Seventeen years had come and gone since the Battle of the Bells, yet the sound of bells, sound of bells ringing still tied a knot in his guts. Others might claim that the realm was lost when Prince Rhaegar fell to Robert's Warhammer on the Trident, but the Battle of the Trident would never have been fought if the Griffin had only slain the stag there in Stony Sept. The bells tolled for all of us that day, for Aerys and his queen, for Elia of Dawn and her little daughter, for every true man and honest woman in the Seven Kingdoms, and for my Silver Prince. 
your silver prince. <laughs> and so John, John Con recalls thinking at first that he was in denial, that he couldn't have done anything differently. And then his buddy, Miles Blackheart, the then captain of the Golden Company, tells John Con, nah, nah, you're wrong. Tywin would have burned the town to the ground, and that's what you could have done. And then John realizes that Miles is right, and that's part of why he's haunted by this memory, that realization that there is something he could have done, there is something that he could have, that, that an action he could have taken that would have prevented the war from getting to the point that it did, and thus Rhaegar would have lived. And so he is, he's haunted by that failure. It's a sad story. Uh, and the conclusion here uh, of his, like, thinking along the lines that he does, it's like, well, okay, strategically speaking, I guess he's right, but it's it's horrible, right? He's like, yeah, I should have burned that town. I should have killed everyone, you know? like, And that's just a, another, yet another reminder that... Sometimes sound battle strategy is the equivalent to, uh, you know, atrocities. And that's a, yet another reminder of war being awful and that there's no way Danny can take the throne or anyone can take the throne without committing atrocities along these lines. I mean, it's overwhelming. And it's amazing that Danny did make this choice to burn, whereas, and, and may regret it afterwards. Well, John Connington is sitting here regretting not doing that <laughs> and that's just love that parallel it's just like get you right in the gut joe you had some uh thoughts here as well that that tie in very nicely yeah i think it just goes back to that ned john point that we made earlier about what you're willing to do for the greater good willing or not willing um it's the price you're willing to pay and this is what daenerys has cooked up and this <laughs> is cooked what... up mm-hmm. yeah i know um <laughs> And then that's what John wishes he could have done, uh, wishes the price he could have paid if he had thought about it. Um, and it's, yeah, you're right. You can, it's all back to perception again. What's an atrocity or what's for the, for the best? Is it really honorable to trick someone into chasing you into a wood and then coming out of the trees and killing you? Well, maybe not, but no one would question Rob for committing atrocities and that, and that one at least. Yeah. So yeah, you can link it to everything. And in a patriarchal society, people are more likely to not trust women in power. And that just makes this all harder because you have uh, it's easier people that the population has already been preconditioned to believe the worst about women rulers where they don't believe that about man rulers. And so you can really see how by choosing to make Daenerys female, like by in, like making this character when he's dreaming her up in the beginning, if he wants to give us a character who's going to be rejected because of who she is, it makes sense to just play into this patriarchal system like that. It just fits really nicely uh, that, that it'll reject her just as it's rejected Cersei and Reyna and Rhaenyra and these other characters before her um, who may not have been such bad people when they were younger. Well, maybe Cersei was, but, you know, <laughs> Rhaenyra, eh, she kind of was too, but not as bad as Cersei. And Reyna, she was okay. <laughs> so anyway. Okay, Jamie and Cersei. Let's talk about them. We talked about um, Cersei individually. We talked a little bit about Jamie last time. As far as it went, it wasn't a, not a whole lot of surprises. We wondered maybe if Brienne would come chase after him. Kind of glad she didn't, you know, <laughs> because I guess that wouldn't have gone well. I warned y'all that there'd be a lot of puns this episode, and and here comes one. You know, it's not it's not a surprise uh, that their relationship didn't work out. It was kind of already falling apart around them, and uh, they always had a rocky relationship. <laughs> so 
I'll I'll stop talking now. Uh, <laughs> one of y'all say something to remove the stain of my bad joke here. <laughs> Talk to us about Jamie and Cersei before I, I go farther. <laughs> Joe, you have good oh, thoughts. You yeah, have good sure. thoughts there. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> I'm definitely not Daenerys. It's all good thoughts from me. Um <laughs> So I, I've already written about this uh, this week, so I won't go too much. But the the death or the lead up to Cersei's death, I actually think fits really well. Um, we spoke a little bit about it earlier about her kind of maintaining this facade um, when Kyburn keeps saying it's not safe and she's not she's not giving an inch still. But when the bells do go and the people start shouting surrender, blah blah blah, and she realizes that all this. Um, the power and the protection that she's got from the throne that she's built up over a lifetime really has gone in an instant and um, what that means for her and uh, her unborn child. It must feel very similar to her walk of shame when everything is kind of taken away and she's just nothing. She's equal now to the small folk and she's reliving that. I do think... um, she must think it's kind of terribly unfair that some that Daenerys, a woman, has appeared with a dragon because Cersei obviously can't match that. And in the books, it's a lot more focused on how she's almost uh, jealous of men and certainly jealous of Jaime and that he was taught to fight and they get all the power and, and this and this. And in the show, she's actually surpassed all that. She's become queen. She's the most powerful person in the continent. And she's broken the glass ceiling on her own, bypassed all the men, and then someone comes along with a dragon. It's not really fair to <laughs> do all these accomplishments, and then someone just one up you like that. So younger, yeah. more beautiful queen, right? Yeah, there it is. Maybe. There it is. Wow, that's really well said, Joe. Good job. Okay, uh, unless you have anything to add to that, Lady Gwen, I have a couple other thoughts about Jamie and Cersei. Yeah, um, no, I just I think that's a that is a very good point, uh, Cersei. You know, she hates um, being a woman. I've I've written a lot about how Cersei spends so much time wishing she was a man that she forgets to use the power and not the powers that she tells Sansa about, but she, she she doesn't doesn't. really embrace her femininity in the books. And now, you know, here she is on the show. She's got all this power, uh, but she's wielding it through. um, Joe is a good point. She's wielding her power through Gregor. She's physically speaking, Mm -hmm. but here comes Danny. Who's a female that has her own agency and own actual physical power with this dragon. And that just must drive her crazy and you can see it in her face as she's watching the dragon fly over the city and you again that acting without saying words is amazing that's a really good take it it, it's making me think about thinking about uh rethink that final scene with her and how desperate she was when gregor stopped listening to her it was it's it's almost like a little microcosm of danny losing her people Mm -hmm. uh that even cersei in her final moments was losing the one person that she could count on because he wasn't really a person. He, you know, he's like, well, this guy, I can yeah. count on him. He doesn't have any interests or, uh, or desires of his own. Apparently he did mm-hmm. still have one built in right. there, which reminds, yeah. it reminds me of night King having still like wanting revenge. Still against having Brand. that one thing. Yeah. 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 You no, know, Gregor was much more of a beast and she thought she had him more like her own kind of dragon, you know, that she yeah. was controlling and then she lost that too. So, 
And then she was really bereft and completely alone. And it's, that's what makes that final moment really powerful, putting yourself in her spot. She has no idea Jamie is alive, let alone there. I mean, and she, for, for all she knows, Braun killed him, you know? <laughs> so it's really incredible that she's like in her final moment that he just appears. It is kind of like Grey, we talk about Grey Worm as an angel of death. Well, Jamie appears almost as like an angel to take her away to the afterlife because they die together and he doesn't actually rescue her. He's just there with her, although he tries to rescue her. Um, and it's really kind of neat looking at it in that kind of meta sense of like, you know, going to entering death together but uh just how shocking it must have been for her to be like what the hell are you doing here and thank you for being here at the same time like wow she might have thought she already died yeah to that's a good point speaking of thinking she already died that's a, a theory that i don't believe but people are pushing forward about aria uh that the pale horse was her riding off to the afterlife which i don't think so but uh it's neat to think about so that's another thing we haven't hardly talked about at all we talked about how Arya rejected uh at the last minute rejected the revenge uh, arc which is good we're glad to see her back away from the edge like that maybe this is her back to humanity moment and maybe we'll get something like that in the books uh joe what do you think about that yeah it says something about this episode though we haven't actually i don't think we've mentioned Arya yet and yet she gets about 10 minutes of screen time basically to herself um yeah like you said I, i'm very interested in what happens to Aya next because she seems to be uh there could be two ways she falls she could listen to sandor she certainly did in the in the instant um about steering away from revenge she essentially saved her and they had that real emotional connection and off she went but on the other hand she's also just lived through a horrific horrific uh ordeal at the hands of daenerys right in the middle of all those uh small folk dying and she tries to save them and fails and all this thing so is she gonna go by sandal's last message and leave it all or is she gonna try and have one last act of revenge because it, it does occur to me that her list is certainly her show list is is done now isn't it? Yeah, Isn't because it, it, was, it was Cersei in the mountain and they're both gone. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good point. Um, and also with regards to her, they brought her back at the last minute and they got to do. Well, actually, not this isn't to do with her. It's really to do with Sandor. Back in season one, there were a few people upset that Littlefinger got Sandor's origin story to t- tell Sansa because Sandor does it so well. And it's so important for his character that he tells it. And if you've ever really dug deep, Rory McCann's audition is him doing that scene, which has <laughs> him just yell, look at me, you know, and it's really intense. You're like, whoa, I can see why that guy got the job. And uh, so it was. I feel like they were making up for it by having her sh- grab Arya and say, look at me. And it was like, hey, he did get to say that to a Stark. They, they sort of gave it to him after all. <laughs> I was very happy to hear that line. Um, mm-hmm. It did feel a little bit like makeup. <laughs> what do you think, Lady Gwen? Kind of, but, uh, you know, it was interesting because he. it's when he says it to her uh, in the books, he, it's to Sansa, of course, and he wants her to, he says, look at me, and she's scared, and he says, everything scares you. You know, you it goes fast forward to the show now, and he says, "Look at me." Arya looks at him, and then um, it's just such a callback because she goes out and she's she's scared of everything. You know, she's well, and justifiably, (laughs) (laughs) fire, (laughs) fire, and blood and buildings are falling from the sky. So, you know, I just thought, you know, what a great way to to tie that up. 
She also looks, but Maisie Williams in that instant looks like she's season three, season four age again. She mm. do a really good job of making her look really young just in that one shot. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Super chat from Lil Angry Irishman who says, I feel like they spent too much time on falling buildings. <laughs> well, <laughs> if anyone's character dealt with a lot of that besides Jamie and Cersei, obviously, it was Arya. Arya was our sort of eye on the street there, our person on the ground who was dodging falling buildings left and right and getting coated in ash. And what do you guys think about the Pale Mare thing? I mean, obviously, it's not a reference to the Pale Mare plot in the books, which is all about disease. Mm. Um, but, uh, and it was bloody, which is, you know, you can't not think of werewoods. Well, you might not think of it, but when someone suggests it, it's like, oh yeah, that red and white. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that leads people to think that Bran was like saving Arya or something like that. That's a, no way to disprove that theory, but obviously nothing to prove it either. Um, but what did you, what did that moment mean to you, Lady Gwyn, the, the pale mare, the final moment there, the way the episode wrapped up in that, in that sense. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe if there's any book implications for that, maybe share that with us as well. Um, I, I don't really think there are book implications just to lead with that. But I think that as a symbol, a white horse represents salvation, doesn't it? You know, or, or the, the hero rides in on a white horse. Um, it's just a, it's such a fantastic uh, literary and cinematic trope. So it was a real moment when I think she needed that salvation mm. uh, to ride out. And what she is riding to is probably something that we all have a lot of thoughts about. And you'll probably talk about on Saturday, but you know, whether she has some further destiny or if she's just going to, you know, give it all up and, you know, go back to just being Arya Stark. Um, I think that the white horse actually can give us some hints as, as far as which direction she's going to take. So. Yeah, I agree. And to, to balance that out a little bit, like you said, if she's going to keep, if she has another job to do killing wise, well, without getting too deep into predictions territory, I will point out that in season one, episode one, Arya shot a bow. And in two different times in this season, Arya shot a bow and showed extreme accuracy. And she has never actually fought with a bow <laughs> in any battle. <laughs> so, hmm. Yes. I'll let you all come to your own conclusions right there um, mm -hmm. and think about where, where a nice little bullseye, why that might matter. But we'll talk about the, that um, on Saturday. <laughs> Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it was intended. But I didn't actually pick up on the um, pale mare bloody flux thing until earlier today. In the initial, I thought that the arrival of a white or silver horse was actually supposed to remind us of what Daenerys used to be when she used to have a silver and Daenerys oh. uh, white horse, and it was just a bit of a look how far she's come type thing. That's a good point. And of course, it's interesting that they killed her horse off in the show really yeah. early, which was like, why did they do that? <laughs> like, I guess because they didn't have enough Dothraki for her, named Dothraki for her to have die, that she just mm -hmm. had to give her, kill off her horse. Maybe also because like keeping that horse consistent throughout every season would have been a challenge. Like, oh, got to kill the horse off. Just like they Budget. killed off, just like they killed <laughs> off Sir Pounce. No, they didn't actually kill him. <laughs> yeah. They just rode him out of the show. Sir Pounce escaped the sack of King's Landing. I'll have you know. He's in the dinghy. Very important. Yes. <laughs> he grabbed. That's why Jamie and Cersei couldn't escape. They got there out of the boat. They're like, the boat's gone. And Sir Pounce is like, see ya. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> you knew. That's what we were all expecting. 
Okay, let's take care of a few last questions and then call it a night. We've been at it for a little longer than usual, but hey, uh, we haven't uh, we had a lot to talk about, didn't we? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Percy P two says, "I like to think the, that the being the monster they think I am line sentiment was shared by the Unsullied and Dothraki. They haven't really been welcomed in Westeros." Good point. Yeah, I mean, even Grey Worm and Unsullied turned on them. That's Whew. Yeah, they're not supposed to do that. Um, so, yeah, and they certainly haven't. We, we've seen that at least a little bit. They showed the, the Northerners kind of rejecting them a bit. They didn't really show that in the South, but it makes sense that it would be even worse in the South because the South doesn't feel like they owe them anything, whereas the Northerners at least have the gratitude, should have some gratitude for them yeah. coming up and, and fighting the dead with them. For each of these questions, I'll pause briefly at the end. If y'all want to jump in with a take, go right ahead. But otherwise, I'll just keep moving. Keep going. Chris Trombley says, we saw one dragon wreak devastation and horror on a city. Could you imagine what it looked like when the Valyrians took 300 dragons to destroy the Roinar? Yeah, you know, I have thought about that. We talked about it in our Roinar episode, but we definitely didn't have these visuals in our in, in mind when we thought about it. We just had to use more of our imagination. And yeah, whoo. That is, it's exactly what I would see. Even, even like Euron, the, 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 her blasting the water in front of the ships and things like that. You could get an idea of how it would hit the Roin itself. Uh, Cause a lot of the Roinish population would be fleeing in ships and things like that. Oof, the visuals. Mm. That would be epic. Super epic. It's uh, interesting to think, you know, she's not that far removed from having two dragons. But if Rhaegal hadn't died, would she still be upset enough to have actually done this in the first place? Because if she had done it with two dragons, it'd be even worse. Oh, mm-hmm. good point. Yeah. Uh, from from uh, Ku Sulevane. Oh, I very much butchered that name. I'm sorry. Grey Worm is looking at John like it'll be a fight. Yeah. What did you guys think of that look that passed between John and Grey Worm? Mm-hmm. Did that that foreshadow violence between them, or at least being on opposite sides, or? Yeah. yeah, yeah, opposition. I think. I mean, just because you know the Unsullied are so wedded to Danny's orders, or you know, following her lead, and that's exactly what they did. And then he sees John hesitate, and I think I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure that Grey Worm would see that as a, you know, as a betrayal, a mm-hmm. further betrayal if if he knows anything about what's already passed between them. So. Mm, okay. Uh, Benjamin Careball asks, do you think John will ever be king of the North or is that a placeholder for Stannis in the books? I think he will be, but mm. I could see it not happening, but I, I do think yes. Uh, what about y'all? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he will. Okay. Mm-hmm. Three yeah. out of three podcasters agree. John will be king of the North in the books. So watch us all be wrong. <laughs> 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 uh, from Bittersteel. Hey, good job with that name, Bittersteel. I'm a fan. I know you've talked about this before, but how powerful are you thinking Danny's dragons are going to be in the books by the time war breaks out? Very good question because it has to have changed a little bit because of the five-year gap, right? Like the, the, the five-year mm-hmm. gap would have given mm-hmm. the dragons more time to grow and become strong. The show is faced with the same challenge, having to kind of accelerate the dragon's growth a little bit to make it all work. Uh, so George is going to be faced with that same issue. So I think they will be less powerful than he had intended them to be because he's kind of sort of wrote himself into a corner. Not a corner he can't get out of, but it creates a small logistical issue there where he may have to have more misses <laughs> by the, and fewer bouncing off the scales. I'm not sure. He may figure out a way to f- fix that somehow, but it's a small logistical issue for sure. 
Uh, super chat from Aylin Productions. Thank you very much. Super chat from B Word on the wildfire. She suggests maybe the wildfire was the uh, Pyromancer's Guild blowing up. <laughs> hey, I like it. Yeah, they. That would make sense. From Brandon Wade. Thank you all for being smart, awesome people. Well, thank you for uh, saying so. We definitely appreciate that. From Carol Funk. Do you think Cersei will be in power by the time Danny gets to Westeros? No, but I do think she will be alive. I think that I, I think that's a theory not a lot of other people share, but I do think she'll be alive. Fire and Blood sent me in that direction with the whole Queen in the West stuff. And then maybe Euron foreshadowing with Cersei that as well would have to for her. She would have to live for that to be possible. But uh, I don't think this theory is super popular. I don't think uh, it's one that a lot of other people share with me. So, certainly several people do. So maybe Lady Gwen or Joe disagrees. No, I'm on your side. Okay. No, I don't. I think I think it's going to be like I said, the three queens. So. Oh yeah, you did say that. You're right. Okay. Yeah. All right then. Well, we do we we do not disagree then. <laughs> so we all don't think Cersei will be in power, but we do think she'll be alive, uh, mm-hmm. have some sort of power, not on the Iron Throne, but she'll have power. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Cool. Uh, from Lord Commander George the Golden, is Sandor's comment that's always been you a joke about all the different actors who have played the Mountain. I thought it was a really good line. I didn't think they'd take it that way. That's funny. But I thought it was a really good line because he can't, it's like he can't converse with the mountain as they're fighting. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty good line. Like, yeah, you've always been a monster. It's like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Um, But that is really funny because he has three different actors have played him. And one of those actors has since played other roles because he's the tall guy. Ian White was the second mountain and he has been all the giants. He was (laughs) one, one and he was that, the, the giant that, that, fought liana so he's still around (laughs) the first the taller thinner mountain from season two from scott westbury what parallels all there are there with daenerys and Macbeth? i am the wrong person to ask uh lady gwen maybe you have some takes here but before you uh say anything i want to shout out shakespeare shakes of thrones who was on our uh witch queen of harrenhal episode which is by the way where a lot of the euron cersei reina talk comes Mm up uh in fire and blood and she is probably the fandom's reigning expert on um, Shakespeare and Game of Thrones, hence the name Shakes of Thrones. And she has earned that name. But also, I want to give a shout out to uh, patron Dan Campbell, who has uh, often gives super chats. He wrote this really excellent piece that I wanted to share, but we do not have time for it. So if you happen to be a patron of History of Westeros, even if you're not, you can see what he wrote. Go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Find the post for this episode the video post the live stream post for this episode season eight episode five book to show live stream and read what he wrote it's awesome Mm. uh he writes Mm. about um i put it right here because it's a he writes it in shakespearean uh so it's a you know relates to this question by scott about daenerys and Macbeth. so Mm -hmm. that was a long way before kicking it over to you lady going in case you have something to say about that and joe as well if you do yeah. Um, no, I think you, to defer to Shakes of Thrones and um, in the in the Radio Westeros family, um, Yoke Boy is the ex- expert not on all things Shakespeare, but on okay. Macbeth, on Macbeth in particular. Um, he would probably have thoughts about this, but you know, other than tragic, that's <laughs> yeah, maybe facing what they've done and and like yeah, self loathing after doing something that they don't like. Yeah. You know, like if she mm-hmm. if she hates herself for burning King's Landing, that yeah. would be. Yeah, Yeah. right on. Um, Well, is that the last question? It might be. It very well might be. Yes, I believe it is. Okay, folks. Well, 
Lady Gwen, let's remind everybody where to find Radio Westeros and uh, all that jazz. Well, if you're uh, watching this on YouTube right now, you can skip on over to the Radio Westeros YouTube channel and find us there. Give us a subscribe. And uh, if you're listening to a podcast, well, find us on iTunes and uh, anywhere you find your podcasts. Uh, go to our website for links to all of that stuff, to our Patreon and um, check out some of our past episodes on a lot of these characters we've been talking about. <laughs> Isn't it nice how our back catalogs sometimes just come right back around again because of the show? Yes. It is yep. nice. <laughs> it is nice. <laughs> um, and Joe, you uh, folks around here have only had one episode to familiarize themselves with where your work can be found, besides the work you've done for us here on History mm -hmm. of Westeros. So let's remind everyone, shall we? Yeah, sure. You can find some of my essays uh, at my site, which is thegrindstone.co.uk. You can find my little podcast called The Eye of Faces uh, at the same place, or my Twitter, which is uh, Sir Buckley, S-E-R Buckley. Um, big announcement coming tomorrow about my large Aswath project. So if you like people shouting about big announcements, keep your eyes open. <laughs> cool. Well, whatever that big announcement is, we'll be uh, helping you spread the word. And one last, looks like someone snuck in one last super chat from Paul Trady. He says, great stream. Happy Wednesday from Tallahassee. Well, that is perfect because I am from Tallahassee. Uh, I lived in Tallahassee from 1993 and or from 1989 till 1997. I went to high school and college there. So and my mother and grandfather live there. It is basically my uh, where I go for Christmas and all that. So what a nice way to wrap the stream up with a note from my hometown. Mm hmm. Well, I, uh, due to having an extremely full bladder, will not read the Patreon credits today. I don't have a Shea to back us up on that. There's no, there's no fallback method here. <laughs> so I apologize for that. But I do want to say thank you very much to our patrons. And I want to say to Denise of Lazar that Rebea, Lady of Waves, has summoned a whole horde of Krakens to come after you. So you got, uh, you got some, some business uh, to handle <laughs> for our prediction show on Saturday. It'll be the usual time of two o'clock. Uh, Sean will be here and we will be discussing what we think is coming. That said, this next episode, they are holding pretty tight. They have not revealed much. The trailer doesn't show much at all. The stills, there's only like two stills or there's usually like a whole set of them. So, but <laughs> if you think we won't have much to say, well, <laughs> <laughs> what are you what are you thinking of course we'll have plenty to say and people will have uh, great questions for us because it's not just about what we have to say it's about what y'all have to say and how we respond to that so this is this is the community aspect of our show all right so thanks everybody uh thanks for everybody who came and liked and shared everyone who gave super chats and asked great questions and who uh everyone who's going to go out and and go like radio westeros's youtube and go like uh, isle of faces and uh do all that stuff support the community and we will be with you all for this final, final episode and for everything that comes after. Because, yes, there will be a lot after and we will be here for all of it. Okay, everyone. Uh, Valar rewatches. Valar reweed us. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>